Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 49 Laws of Survivor Power from the Survivor Know-It-Alls. I'm Rob Sesternino. I'm Stephen Fishback. Yes, and we are about to take you on a tour of 49 Laws for Survivor Power and also power in your own real life, Stephen. These are our laws that you can use to manipulate the circumstances and the people around you, whether in life or if you happen to be cast on Survivor on your tribe. Yes. And so what we're going to do here is take you on a walk through Robert Greene's book, which people have uh, read for many years now, The 48 Laws of Power. And we're going to apply that to Survivor and show you examples of how these laws of power have been used on Survivor, can be used by you, can be used by you on Survivor as well, plus our own law, which we came up with, which will be that added extra ingredient that you need for the Survivor success you're looking for. So you're getting more laws here than you would if you just read Robert Greene's book. This is, this is you know, you thought 48 laws was effective. 49 laws is yes, where it's at. Yes, even more effective. Stephen, yeah. I know you've been a longtime fan of this book. What is it that appeals to you about the original book, The 48 Laws of Power? I think it's just how truly applicable it is to life, where, you know, Green takes these examples from ancient history, from ancient China, from the Medicis, from Machiavelli, but he shows you how the way that these classic historical manipulators were able to win in their societies and in their courts really can help you in your life. And uh, it's not just nefarious, you know, mwahaha, you know, like twirling your mustache. It's it's power as a kind of idea that truly is applicable to human interaction. Yeah, I really like this because what he does is he sort of takes these, you know, things that these tactics that people have used in war and in all sorts of other political situations and he makes it feel like it's a game. And we're sort of taking something that's a game and then we're applying all of these different tactics to it that are outlined in the book. Yeah, and and one nice thing I really like about it is that these he really it's really the laws that kind of govern human interaction and he just makes them really explicit. And these are things that are probably happening in your day-to-day life anyway. And when you hear about them and you see them, you think, oh, yes, this, this was kind of how, you know, this was how I interacted with my boss or this was, you know, why so-and-so got voted out on Survivor. And to really make it explicit, like, makes you aware of it and then allows you to be the master of it. And that, you know, that's not an evil thing. That's just like a natural thing. The book at its core really talks about power and power is interesting in a lot of different ways because the way that we think about power usually isn't the way that power is obtained. You know, we sort of think about that, oh, power, you just go and you grab the power and that's and that's how you have it. But often in life and certainly in Survivor, as you'll see, that it's a much more circuitous route that people have to take to get to the power that we're going to see. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that, like the, the typical conception of power is, you know, uh, you're stabbing your way to the top and, you know, take no prisoners. But what, what Green really does really well is he shows how it's, you know, being flexible and adaptable. And sometimes being super kind is a way of, of you know, attaining power for yourself and sometimes making friends and sometimes not making friends in a certain way. And so it really is kind of power as expressed in a, in a different in a different way than than just than just you know the the monarch you know slashing his way to the throne. It's more kind of Kevin Spacey in House of Cards, just you know shaking the right hand at the right moment. Yeah, much like Littlefinger as well, Game of Thrones, and you see a lot of characters in the TV shows and the dramas that we watch have this sort of attitude. Because if somebody came out and said, "Hey, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to grab the power in Survivor and in life." Those people are very quickly outed as the threats and the people that you have to worry about. It's the people who aren't as outward with their intentions that are the people that you really have to worry about in the game of power. Right. It's like the classic merge boot, you know, this sort of like chest thumping alpha male who's leading things. You know, you know, that guy's not making it to the end. Yeah, because power and in Survivor and in life is civilized war, as Green outlines in the book. Because, you know, when you step into, whether it's the business world or whether it's the game of Survivor, you are sort of agreeing that you are taking part in this game. And you can say that you're sort of, well, you know, I don't want to have to play the game. You know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to play by these rules. But your failure to do so for whatever sort of moral hangup you have about that just means that at some point you are just going to get run over by somebody who is playing by these rules. So you really don't have a choice. If you step into the arena, then you are going to have to play by these rules, whether you want to or not. So you might as well learn them and figure out how to master them. And Green interestingly says that like people who like refuse to play by the rules of power are kind of being manipulative in their own way, you know, using their sort of holier than thouness as a tool. So in in some ways, no matter you know whether you're consciously playing by these rules or you're not, you're some in some way. You know, everyone is trying to affect the world around them. Everyone is trying to move forward in their career and win the esteem of their peers and you know have a healthy family life. And in some way, you're inherently using these rules and to like really just be explicit about them and see them can actually help you lead a better life. Absolutely. That's what you did. Yeah, I did. Everything everything I have right now is from reading these rules. You know, like five <laughs> five years ago when I read this book, I was I was, you know, destitute. Now now look at me. You had nothing and look at you yeah. now. Yeah. And one of the things that you've been able to do so well, Stephen, is how you've mastered your emotions because that's one of the really important things that you need to remember when you're looking at these 49 laws that we're going to talk about. Nothing is emotional. It's all about if somebody has wronged you in the past, get over it. Forget about it. If they can help you in the future, you have to work with them. If somebody has been kind to you in the past, forget about it because at some point you may need to run them over. So it's just separating your emotional feelings about people from what your current situation is now and in the future. But it's not being a sociopath, right? It's being charming. It's it's being influential. It's It's, you know, it's just like it's being, you know, the classic great survivor player who really truly adapts to every day and every situation as it arises. The Rob Sesternino, if you will. 
Yeah, and sociopath is putting way too much of a label on things, you know, because we're again, what we're doing is we're not labeling anything. It just things just are. You no know? judgments. There's no judgment on things. It's it's the judgments that can sort of cloud our reasoning on things. If somebody has been a great ally in the past, but you suspect that they could be working against you, or you realize that you're not going to be able to get past them, even if they've done nothing wrong, you have to be able to separate your feelings for that person from from what is standing in your way. And so what the book talks about so much is, you're right, adapting and being flexible and coming up with all the different scenarios and not just the scenarios where everything goes your way, but also coming up with the contingency plans for what are the worst case scenarios and how do I deal with those if they come up? Yeah, Green says, you know, the path of a billiard ball is the path you want to take, you know, the one that hits every sort of right angle along the way. Now, I personally prefer, you know, a snooker ball, but uh, a billiard ball is an acceptable analogy. I don't know what a snooker ball is, but I'll just take your word for it that it's like a billiard ball. Yeah, I think I actually I'm not sure myself. I think that I think that's right, though. It's not a dessert. <laughs> it sounds delicious. It sounds delicious. Yeah, it could be on the Jersey Shore. <laughs> so. Stephen, uh, among the other things that we're going to really focus on, this idea of being an iron hand in a velvet glove, where you are just this, you know, hard and unstoppable force, which mm-hmm. on the inside is what you are. But on the outside, you have this, you know, smooth silk exterior uh, or velvet in this case, and you are just so pleasing to everybody. Everybody likes you. You're making people feel good. But if anybody tries to take advantage of, oh, I'm just going to let me shake that hand in that velvet glove, they're not going to realize what they're dealing with. It's like if Dr. Doom went to Cotillion, you know, he might, he might wear velvet gloves. That's exactly what it would be like. Just a So that's what you should aspire to be is Dr. Doom in Cotillion, a truly evil, maniacal person who, you know, knows how to dance. Yeah. And again, there's nothing bad about what we're going to talk about. So we want you to really understand if you're going to go through with this book and this chapter, we're going to make available for people. So if you don't think you can handle that sort of moral separation, then I would say that this probably is not for you because what we're going to be talking about is just the idea of separating what is quote unquote ethical way of playing the game and the way of approaching power from what are sort of the just these strategic tent poles that we're going to lay out. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of like the real concepts in this book is that anyone who's playing the game has signed up to play the game, you know, and that's certainly true on Survivor, you know, where literally people have signed up to play the game. So they have stepped into the ring. So, you know, no holds barred. Steven, one more thing about this is that you also have to take into account what you are not going to do. And there's going to be times along the way that we're going to tell you people who did the wrong things and we're going to point those mistakes out as well. So we're going to be really taking a lot of very specific examples from the game of Survivor, both the master strategists who have really perfected these laws of power, and then some of the uh, less successful strategists who, in complete contravention of the laws, uh, fell on their faces. And this is a book that's there 
to help you because if there are times in your life or in the game of Survivor when you are feeling powerless, there are things that you could be doing, taking matters into your own hands to help that feeling. And these are techniques that have been used all throughout history. And a lot of the things that they talk about in the book were things that came out of the courts. Could you tell us a little bit more about the court life ecosystem? Yeah, it was basically a place where you had these different levels of nobles, and they're all trying to impress the king and get ahead of each other. But there was at the same time this incredibly refined sense of etiquette. So you couldn't outright attack someone. You know, you had to plot against them in the most subtle ways. You had to drop a rumor about them or you had to, you know, find a number of similarly minded other courtiers and, you know, have a real plot to advance your station. So it was all very duplicitous and cloak and dagger. But at the same time, it was incredibly polite. And you had to be subtle because if you did anything that was less than subtle or you were conspicuous about how you were approaching attacking somebody, you'd be exposed and you'd be thrown out of the court. Sounds familiar? Yeah. Or or you would have your head snuffed. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's yeah. terrible. So <laughs> we're about to go into these laws in detail in this presentation. We also suggest that you check out the actual book of the 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. If you want to read the audiobook version of that or the actual book of that, I'm going to provide links for you guys to be able to check those out because those are both very informative and present some different subject matter than what we're going to talk about here. If you want to take a look at either of those or listen to either of those, you can go to robhasawebsite.com slash 48lawsbook. So while we're using a lot of really specific examples from Survivor and alluding to some of Green's historical examples, you know, Green really has very, very extensive and interesting uh, examples from every phase of history, you know, all of the great wars and nobles and, you know, from across the world. So uh, there's, there's a lot of really rich and interesting insights in the full book, and I would highly recommend it. As would I. So in the following chapters, you're going to recognize many of the strategies that were deadly for the masters of the game. And you'll see how their most famous tactics fall in line with the laws of power. We'll also take a look at some of the most infamous blunders made by people who chose to ignore these laws. So if the power of survivor success is what you seek, pay close attention and even take a few notes as Stephen and I now present to you The 49 Laws of Survivor Power. Law 1, never outshine the master. Now, Stephen, what does this mean, never outshine the master? So the idea behind this is that you always want the people who are in entrenched positions of of power feeling comfortable with you. If they feel threatened by you, then they're going to react negatively. They're going to try to get rid of you. They're going, you know, in survivor terms, they're going to vote you out if they see you as a threat. And this is would be in real life where if your boss starts to feel like you are more important than your boss is, 
then that's actually a bad thing. So it's like while you want to be impressive to your boss, you don't want your boss to get paranoid and start to feel like, oh, I better get rid of this person because they're ultimately going to take my job. And that's because, you know, if they're your boss, they are in a position of power where they can, you know, actually undermine you and destroy you. Now, obviously, there's instances where you do want to appear smarter or better than other people around you. But in this law, law one, never outshine the master. That's where you have someone who really is in a position of power um, and you don't want to awaken their ire or threaten them because they have the power or they can they can just smack you down. Now, in reality, you probably are smarter than your boss, or at least you feel like you are. But the idea is that you always want your boss or in the case of Survivor, the leader of your alliance to feel like they're smarter than you. So what this could look like in work or Survivor is sort of like, oh, could you explain Could you explain this to me one more time? Or because, <laughs> you know, that uh, you know this stuff so much better, you know this stuff so much better than I do. And basically, you don't want to be a kiss-ass, but it's good to let the person in charge feel like they're smarter than you always. And, you know, one way that I think that's, you know, one sort of like life strategy, I think that really works well with this is the idea that you present your ideas as though they are just echoing your boss's thought. And, and on the one hand, you know, that can be literally just echoing your boss's thought so that you seem to be in line with him or her. Um, and on the other hand, you know, maybe you just kind of restate things in a way that's more favorable to what you want, but it seems to your boss like you're agreeing with them. So your boss says, you know, I, they have this idea, idea A, and you're like, yes, that's a great idea. And then you actually put forth idea B, but it's in the context of idea A. Uh, not totally sure if that makes sense, but, uh, you know, the idea is you can take what your boss is, is saying and use it to sort of further your own ends as well. So long as you do it in the context of, you know, respect and deference to the boss. Because the last thing you want to do is come off as threatening. And if that means sometimes, you know, in the presence of your boss or your leader, being somebody who is holding back or not giving, you know, 100% of your ideas because you don't want to make your boss or superior look bad, then there's no shame in that. That's right. just you playing the game. And ultimately, you need to stay in there because it, if your boss or your leader wants to get rid of you, then you are out of the game and your torch is out, whether it's in your organization or in Survivor. Okay, so let's talk about this more in terms of specifically looking at Survivor. And I think one of the times where this really comes into play is the idea of a season where you have a returning player and then a bunch of new players. Right, because this returning player is coming into the game with just this ton of experience, you know, all of this reputation. And uh, the people on the tribe are naturally going to flock to that person um, just because they've got their, their little bit of fame, you know, they've got sort of the bigger, the bigger than life personality and their experience just makes them that much better. So, uh, that person comes into the game in, in a real position of power. Steven, who's somebody that you feel like has done a really good job of coming into the game and not outshining the master when you have a returning player in the mix? So when we were first talking about, you know, finding survivor examples that matched up with these laws, I thought immediately of 
Sophie and Coach in Survivor South Pacific, where Sophie just did this perfect job of always playing to Coach's, you know, sense of himself. And Coach, you know, he really comes in with this like aura of a boss, like I'm Coach, I'm the dragon slayer, I'm the leader of this tribe, I've been anointed by God. And Sophie just, you know, was very happy to play that number two role and flatter him all the way to the end, knowing that she could beat him there at the final tribal. You know, a lot of people were critical of Sophie's game and felt like she didn't make any big moves. She didn't do anything to get to the end. And so maybe she's not a good winner. But when we look at it through the perspective of in the idea of just making your leader feel comfortable, it's sort of a different game that she's playing. Right. And, you know, it's like part of that game was was by its nature not being flashy and not making the big move, because if she had done that, she would have like come out on coach's radar and he probably would have got wanted to get rid of her. And I remember very well in episode one um, where, you know, coach learns that Sophie speaks Russian and he says some like, you know, Russian phrase. It's like Das Vidania or something, you know, it's or like vodka. And she's like, oh, wow, that's that's so incredible. Like, you, well, you know, well done. Your Russian is so great. Um, and so, like, she does this great job of of playing up to what he really wants to be perceived as. And, you know, the important thing to remember with somebody like Coach, who's the returning player, he's looking at people who he wants to find the threats. So right. you have somebody like Christine from that season who, as soon as coach gets there, she says, oh, returning players, got to go. And so she puts herself on the radar as somebody that is a threat, somebody that he needs to, to pick off. So by not outshining the master, making the master feel like you were going along with what he wants to do, you put yourself in a position to, at some point down the road, and for Sophie, it was at the final tribal council, you were able to basically outshine the master and take over his or her position when it really counts. Right. And that's what it comes down to is like when you, you know, what the end goal is. And there's a very clear one in Survivor and there's a very clear one for Sophie. You know, it's get to the end and win. And in real life, you know, maybe it's just getting another promotion or maybe it's, you know, I, I, there maybe there is a point down the line where you'll, where you'll want to outshine your master. But, um, you know, in Survivor, it's so clear because there's that final tribal council where, you know, everything kind of comes down to it. Um, and, and Sophie just, just showed perfectly how to do it. You know, you, you just stay in the shadow and, and direct things that way. Now for Sophie, when it came time to the final tribal council, she needed to demonstrate exactly to the jury that she was actually the master the whole time. And she was able to uh, stand in front of the jury and our Great researcher Mike Bloom has uh, pulled some of these quotes. Stephen, could I give you Sophie's quote from the final tribal council? So Sophie, what she said in front of the jury was, before I came to this game, I said, I wish I was a man because I feel like men can get two young girls to follow him to the end. And that's something that I can't do. And when I met Coach, I saw him as the equivalent of a young girl. He was someone who said to me, my loyalty is worth more than a million dollars. I want to come out of this game restoring who I am. That's a guy who's not going to write my name down. And so Sophie was able to turn the table and really demonstrate to the jury that she was somebody who was in more control than maybe they might have thought coming into that. 
Right. And so it does show you that, like, while she was playing this game in the shadows, while she was playing this game where she was kind of, you know, um, never outshining the master, she had that sort of end goal in line. This was a very strategic decision for her uh, to play this part. So we see that Sophie did a really great job in Survivor South Pacific, but somebody she played with in Survivor South Pacific and maybe somebody who watched her very closely when Cochran comes back in Survivor Karamoan, he's able to do the same thing with Philip. When Philip takes control of the game with the whole Stealth R Us business, that Cochran is the one person who is really able to tolerate what Philip is doing and become sort of a close confidant of Philip, even though he doesn't really respect everything that Philip may be doing out there. Yeah. And that there, I mean, the, the scene that immediately came to mind was when Philip, uh, you know, completely blew it in some challenge against Reynolds and then comes back to camp and is like, well, did you see the way I strategically blew that challenge? And Cochran just totally plays into it. It's like, oh my God, that was amazing. You know, you, you really, you really were, uh, you know, that was a great idea. So, um, I loved, I loved that moment, which I felt really encapsulated kind of Cochran's ability to fluff Philip. Now, there's also been a lot of times that people have not done a good job of this. Now, somebody that we're going to talk about probably a lot over the course of the 49 Laws of Survivor is Boston Rob Mariano. And Boston Rob, for the most part, adheres to a lot of the rules that we're going to talk about it. You'll find, you'll hear a lot of names over and over again, but his is going to be a name that we're going to talk about a lot of the stuff that he did. And Steven, in his season, Redemption Island, which is probably the season where he locks down a lot of these laws that we're going to talk about. I want to talk about his experience with Matt Elrod. Right. I just want to say about Boston Rob, you know, first of all, he's someone who's very thoughtful and strategic about using these strategies, right? He was a psychology major. So he knows the ways to manipulate people. And, you know, whether or not you think that uh, Redemption Island was sort of a cakewalk for Rob or, or it was handed to him, you know, the very fact that he coming in playing for his 50th time uh, against these new players, um, you know, that allowed him to really try out these strategies and, and, and kind of was a proving ground for the strategies, you know, simply because the competition was a little bit easier. Um, and so, you know, in some ways he was more able to enact these, you know, very complicated strategic moves that we're going to talk about a lot. And in the case of Matt Elrod, he's not only somebody that committed this transgression of the law, he sort of committed the same transgression twice in one season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the biggest, I mean, for Matt, Matt's biggest transgression, right, was when he started cozying up with Andrea. And Boston Rob, you know, his game at that point was sort of having everyone be really devoted to him, especially these young girls. So then when Boston Rob sees... Oh, Andrea is naturally attracted to Matt. Matt's flirting with her. Matt is pulling Andrea over to him. Suddenly, that threatens Boston Rob. And even though Matt was completely devoted and dedicated to Boston Rob, that appearance that he had of doing something that slightly weakened Boston Rob's power, that was enough. So Boston Rob is able to get Matt Elrod the first time, and then Matt Elrod comes back into the game. Right. And what does he do? You know, he immediately 
is, you know, making these bonds with everybody. And there was a lot of stuff going on with religion and people reading the Bible, which uh, Rob didn't like. And Matt is approached by the Zapatera group and they end up talking about a plan to maybe come after Rob. And Matt went ahead and actually tried to be honest and told Boston Rob about this plan that was going on. Right. Uh, that's that's a pretty bad a pretty bad decision. And so Boston Rob uh, looks at Matt Elrod and says, "Like, uh, oh, you you're making plans." Well, and then you know he ends up going out again for the second time again yeah. blindsided uh by rob because he rob did not like the idea that anybody was even taking a meeting about the idea of getting him out even if they didn't go through with it yeah and that's it you know it just depends on who your master is you know someone as sensitive as boston rob you just have to be so careful with it um you know you've really got to just be aware that he needs to completely control everything and everybody and you know the time to take out the master is at the end right the time to make your move is when all the chips are on the table but you can't have that sort of uh in the in the interim you can't be kind of this like big character because then the master is immediately threatened boston rob's gonna vote you out and i don't think that we're saying if anybody is misunderstanding that never take out the master that's not what we're saying. The idea right. is never outshine the master. So if you are a returning player or if you are a new player and you want to vote out the returning player, that's fine. The returning player needs to be completely blindsided because if they even suspect that you are going to be coming for them, they will cut off your head in the game before you even get the chance. And that's probably the closest that you could talk about with me and Boston Rob in my own personal experience of outshining the master where the difference was I didn't necessarily know Boston Rob was the master, but he felt like he was, he was the master at that point in time in survivor all stars where he felt like, you know, let me, I've seen what, what this other Rob can do. I don't want him, you know, taking away any of my spotlight. Let me get to him before he gets to me. And you know what? It largely probably, or at least partially probably was because your name is also Rob. And that's like another example of, you know, the master feeling defensive, right? He wants to be the strategic Rob. And there you are, you're the strategic Rob, you know? So he's feeling like, wow, my position, my sense of self is threatened here. Yeah. Uh, And so he has to, uh, you know, make a move to take you out. Stephen, if my name was Dave, my life could have taken on a completely different trajectory. Yeah, who knows? Who knows where you'd be yeah, right now? You, you because, could have won the Rupert Million. Or, or Dave Johnson could have voted me out in the beginning of Survivor Amazon. <laughs> yeah, all right, that's the real Dave. Yeah. <laughs> that could have been the Dave that sucks right now. Yeah. Okay. So, Stephen, is there anything else from Law 1 that you want to hit on? No, I mean, I think, you know, one thing I do want to say is that this sort of essential law, you know, will sort of be refracted and reflected in a lot of the other laws to come. So there's always there's elements of a lot of these laws that overlap with each other. Uh, so, you know, bear that in mind as we kind of explore the the laws that we're going to be talking about in the future. One other thing that I really like from the book is this idea that you need to make the master appear as the sun to which everyone else revolves around. So 
Everybody else in the alliance were all revolving around what the leader of the alliance is thinking. And we're all sort of like, that person gets the biggest portion. That person is, you know, what do you want to do? What do you think we should do? You know, run it, you know, check, check with me. And Boston Rob did such a good job on that season with the buddy system. So no decision gets made without the master knowing about it. Or at the very least, the master should be under that impression. It would have been really interesting if Sophie was on the Boston Rob season, right? Because, you know, on that season, you did have these girls who like immediately were drawn into his orbit. I would have liked to have seen if Sophie could have, you know, couched herself in the shadows or if, or if Boston Rob would have, you know, seen what she was up to. So whether you're Sophie dealing with a survivor alpha male or if you're confronted with a control freak boss at your own job, you want to show them just enough to let them know you're a valuable member of the team, but you never want to let them see what you both know, that you're the one who really should be running the show. Law two, never put too much trust in friends. Learn how to use enemies. Do you want to explain the the meaning of this law, Rob? Yeah, I really love this law. It's one of my favorites in the whole book because there's an idea, and this is so huge in Survivor, of this person is my friend. This person won't screw me over because they're my friend. And that's really at the heart of all of these blind sides that you see on reality TV. It's where People feel like not just I had an alliance, but I feel like I have a friendship and we became friends and it was all fake. You went behind my back and you screwed me over for money and our friendship meant nothing. And that idea, it happens all the time in Survivor, but it happens in the real world too, where it, people are your friends at work and then you feel betrayed by them and you trusted them because you say, hey, that person's my friend. They're not going to screw me over. but in the game of Survivor and in business, it happens. You know, not everybody who's your friend is going to screw you over. But if you continue to climb high enough in power or in any organization, eventually you will get screwed over by one of your friends. And then the other side of this coin, it's sort of a two-part rule, is that you need to learn how to use your enemies. Where if you have somebody who's your enemy, you know, you could just write them off. And I'm never talking again they're my enemy, but you also have an opportunity with every enemy that you have because one, they're your enemy. You know where they stand. You know, it's like, okay, well, I know this person hates my gut, so I know what he's doing. Whereas your friends, sometimes it's hard to really know where they stand. Like, are they lying to me? Are they just telling me what I want to hear? Whereas your enemy will, you know, usually be pretty predictable with uh, what they want to do because they're your enemy. But if you could ever get back to working with your enemy. One, sometimes people won't suspect that. And two, if somebody is was your enemy in the past, a lot of times they want to try to win you back. And sometimes you can trust your enemy more than your friend because your enemy it knows that you think they're going to screw them, you over. So they're trying really hard to not screw you over. 
And there's another element to that where if you're enemies with someone and then you're in a position of power with, uh, with respect to them and you spare them or you welcome them in, they will become more grateful to you than a friend is. You know, and someone who used to be an enemy who you like bring into your circle like or, or who, who you spare in the game, um, they're going to be maybe the most loyal person of all because, uh, you know, they didn't expect you to do anything. You had sort of no bonds of obligation. Whereas a friend, you know, in from a friend's perspective, if you're being nice to them, if you're including them, that's just what you're supposed to be doing. You're not doing anything special. So they might not feel gratitude for that. And in fact, could even feel upset when you are not, you know, doing everything you possibly can. I mean, I'm thinking generally speaking here about reward challenges, right? We see this all the time where people don't take their friends on rewards because they're, you know, they're in the game, they're being strategic and their friends get so upset about it because, you know, this is my friend and they're not doing the friend thing for me. And then suddenly, you know, the friend is not going to say anything to you. They're not going to openly disagree with you, but they are going to like harbor that resentment. So the, it's easier to scorn a friend, whereas your enemy isn't going to be upset that you didn't take them on the reward, but they're going to be incredibly grateful if you do. And there's also that same sort of thing that happens in the real world where it's like, let's say you get a good job and you can hire somebody at that job and you might have friends who will then feel like, well, they, you should hire me because you're my friend, even though they're not necessarily the best person for the job. But even when you do hire somebody who is your friend, that person who's their friend, they think that they got it on their merit. They're like, you know, they may feel like, well, I didn't just get this job because I'm Steven's friend. Like I got this job because, you know, I know Steven, but you know, I deserve this job. And so you really won't get the thanks. Like you feel like now, you, you know, Steven, you hired me for a job that I'm not qualified for, which is very difficult to imagine uh, that would, that would happen. But uh, because I'm so, I'm so qualified for any position. Uh, but <laughs> well, one thing that Green says, which I thought was really interesting, was like not only will they think it's on their merits, but like that little bit of insecurity where they're like, "Oh, is it just because I'm his friend?" will actually lead them to resent you. You know, where so they'll actually like actively plot against you because you gave them something, right? And be, because you hired them, but they want to feel and they need to feel that they they have these skills and it's not just personal. So they're going to undermine you as a way to. To prove themselves. It's such like, you know, this interesting psychological dynamic. Yeah. And it's also messed up because then you also feel like every time you see them, it's like, you know, you should have so much gratitude to me. I, you wouldn't even have this job if it wasn't for me. Right. And then if you ever say that to them, then it's, then it's a whole big thing. So Stephen, this is why I never one hire friends for things. Right. And, or make friends. You or have make friends. friends. That's yeah, exactly. right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also it's, you know, if you hire people who are your friends for for jobs or just because they're your friends, they probably are going to suck at those jobs and you're the one who's going to end up looking bad. So it's just a whole bad thing to get involved with your friends in any sort of work situation. So let's talk about the survivor version of this. So one example, I think, of someone doing this incredibly well is actually Tony in, uh, in this season, Survivor Kagayan, when Tony wants to vote out Jeffra. He doesn't go to his alliance. You know, he doesn't go to his friends, Trish 
and Cass and tell them about this plan because they're going to want to have a voice in this. You know, they're his, quote, friends. They're going to disagree with him. They're going to be angry. They're going to want to have equal footing in this decision. Instead, Tony goes to his enemies. He goes to Spencer and Tasha and says, you need to do this um, my way. You need to enact my will. And they do it because they know, you know, that they're they're grateful for the chance to be brought in. They're grateful for the opportunity to save themselves. You know, it's just like we were talking about you. You know, if you spare an enemy, they're going to enact your plan, you know, with all the more uh, enthusiasm. So, you know, Spencer and Tasha vote out Jeffra and and Tony does it with his enemies, not his friends. It's really important when you look at the survivor board to not write off people who you may have had disagreements with in the past because everybody is a vote. And just because somebody is mad at you at one point doesn't mean they won't necessarily work with you on another vote down the line. And I think it's important in Survivor. It's important in politics. And you just never want to write people off. And that's like a very common thing when after a tribe merges, if they pick up someone from the opposite alliance, that that person is always going to be one of the most loyal people to them. Um, you know, there was Shambo and Samoa as one example who was super loyal to Russell. You know, they they theoretically were enemies, but as soon as you bring them over to your side, they're going to be more loyal than than even your allies. Now, what's more fun to talk about are the times that people didn't listen to this law and the times that people did not follow along with not putting too much trust in friends. And I think my favorite one of these to talk about comes from Survivor All-Stars and Boston Rob and Lex and that famous, famous moment when Lex is, is approached by Boston Rob after there's a, tri- a tribe swap and basically that all of the people from the uh, Mogo Mogo tribe end up going to the Shapara tribe and all the people from the Shapara tribe end up going to Mogo Mogo and with the exception of Amber who ends up being switched to go to the team with Lex and Kathy and Jerry and Sheehan. So basically, there's two tribes of five people each. Even though in the numbers, it started out where I believe that there was a six to four advantage from the Shapara side. And so obviously, the vote was going to be, Amber was going to be the next person to be voted out when Shapara went to tribal council. But Boston Rob comes to Lex and says to her, hey, you take care of her. I'll take care of you. Okay. Now, Boston Rob and Lex are good friends before Survivor All-Stars. And Boston and Lex says, okay, uh, and Kathy, Kathy gets overlooked in this a lot too. Kathy and Lex say, okay, Rob is our friend. We can trust him. Right. And Stephen, how, how does that go? They were right. He, they, he, he paid him back and Lex won Survivor. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, quite the opposite. When, when Lex tried to cash in on that favor, uh, Rob, Rob was not having it. Yeah. And so in that episode, after that, Lex is talking and, and, he, and he tells us, look, I, I cut her loose to keep Amber around as a favor to Rob when I need to cash in with Rob I'm sure he'll deliver. He's good on his word. Now, of course, that Lex got rid of his friend in Jerry, who was somebody who was loyal to him to be able to 
follow up with Boston Rob and make and make this deal. And then uh, Rob ultimately, of course, famously pulls the rug out from Lex. Not and not only does he, you know, not want to work with Lex, that Lex is going to become the first person to get voted out after the merge. And this is what, you know, Lex would would never have made this decision if it was just some random person saying, hey, can you spare my ally and I'll spare your allies later, right? Like the, what what's so blinding about this is that Lex thinks of Rob as a friend he can trust. And it's that friendship that, you know, blinds him to the situation. There's just one more quote about this that's really great and really illustrates this, that Lex says to Boston Rob, let me tell you something. That was not a game or a strategy decision. It was a brother coming to another brother, friend to friend, and you know that. I had my game all worked out. And if I had voted out Amber, I would have come in here with the numbers advantage. And I did just that because you were my friend. It's about being betrayed by my friend. I like that you really add the anger into your voice when you read that He was quote. very angry. I can hear it. Even, when, even in your recounting of it, I can hear that. He was very angry because... Honestly, if Lex votes out Amber at that point, it then becomes a situation where then it's uh, five to four and Shapira still has the numbers. But Big Tom, if he goes over right. to the, the other side, then all of a sudden, and that was the thing that everybody used to say that, oh, Lex and Tom, Big Tom, they have, they're working together. So the, ultimately, when Lex was down in the numbers, it didn't make any sense for Big Tom to switch. But if Big Tom would have switched, then Lex would have been up in the numbers and he probably would have gone to the end with Big Tom and Kathy had they been able to just just vote out Amber. But he felt like that this was an opportunity. And to be fair here, you know, 100%, I think that Lex felt like he had a, a, a good shot to go to the end with, with Rob and Amber. Like he felt, I think he felt like that he wanted to make a new final five, which was going to be, Lex, Tom, Kathy, Rob, and Amber. I think that's what he wanted the final five to be. And so he felt like that, okay, I will, re- I will do this for Rob and then he will repay me by work, you know, working with me and we're going to and we're gonna go to the final five, the five of us. Now, maybe he was saying that, okay, because Rob is my friend, that's what I want. But I feel like, you know, Lex felt like that there was something to be gained out of keeping Amber as well. Like, I don't know if it was a completely a 100% generous decision on his part. I think the point is that, you know, Lex would never be doing this if Rob wasn't a friend, right? And like, mm-hmm. he would never make this move for just some random person on the other tribe. He He's doing it out of trust and he's doing it out of faith. And this is the essence of this law where, you know, you, you just can't, the friendship just obscures things so much. It obscures people's motivations. You imagine that you can put faith in someone when you can't in a situation and you would just never make the same mistake with an enemy or with someone who was neither friend nor enemy. Uh, and I think we saw something very similar in Survivor Blood versus Water where Aris trusted his real world friendship with Jervis. Meanwhile, Jervis is, is trying to make the best strategic move for himself. He teams up with Tyson to vote out Aris. Now, Aris was incredibly... Uh, upset by that and betrayed by that. And, um, you know, th- this was Jervis making a strategic decision where Aris trusted him to make a friendship decision. 
Well, that's the thing about a lot of these survivors that have a real life friendship or a pregame alliance in, in some cases where it blinds you to the danger of that person where it's you come back to a season and it's like, okay, well, I've got a pregame alliance with this person. So I know I'm good with that person. And meanwhile, it puts up blinders because if you didn't have a pregame alliance with that person, you'd be saying, hey, what's, uh, you know, what's Jervis doing right now? What is he talking about? Right. Is Jervis with me? Is Jervis against me? And that fear and that sort of like neurotic thinking is a good thing in Survivor. I think Cochran mentions it in his final, in his final tribal council in Caramon. You want to be paranoid all the time. That's a good thing. You know, not overly paranoid to the point that you're getting on everybody's nerves. But if you say, okay, I'm good with that person. I don't need to worry about them. That is when you really need to start being worried because once you think you shouldn't be worried, that's probably when you're about to be voted out. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, how many times in the game have we seen people say, I'm on top of things. I have everyone in my hand in, in control. And just like having a friend makes it that much harder. You know, you really need to be able to go through and see every single person's best strategic move at every given time. And uh, like you're saying, you know, the friend thing, it just you're like, oh, I'm good with that person. Like, let's like go down the next person in the line. And another reason it's great to have enemies, Stephen, it gives the Survivor casting another reason to bring you back and they'll make a, a season about you and your enemy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Tony and Spencer aren't friends. <laughs> That's right. So don't have friends and make the most out of your enemies because at the end of the day, you always know you can count on them. You can't say the same for your friends. Law three is conceal your intentions. Now, Stephen, that seems like sort of an obvious idea that you would want to conceal your intentions. But why is this such an important one of the 49 laws of Survivor? It is. It is so obvious and that doesn't make it any less important. It is vital in Survivor especially, but in life as well, that you do conceal your intentions, that you do dissemble a little bit, that you do... Uh, in a word, lie. Uh, because, you know, when you're in a situation like Survivor, you know, it, it's easy to get heated. It's easy to get upset at the people around you, to have negative thoughts about them, um, and to have plans, obviously, that involve voting them out. You should not tell people those plans. But I think it's even more than just your words, where it's like, if you want to come in and play the game of somebody who is going to be really cutthroat and really devious, the best appearance to give off is one of a really nice person who would never do any of those things so that you can sort of earn the trust. If you sort of like came into the game and sort of like, you know, had like a, you know, you know, lots of things that would make people feel threatened of you to start you won't be as trusted as somebody who comes in with a nice, like clean cut appearance that's reading the Bible all the time. And you'll be able to get over on people much easier because people often trust their first impressions more so than looking deeper at what they might actually be seeing. 
I mean, I think what you're talking about is even level two of this law. You know, that's like, or I guess you you think level one is the highest, right? But um, that's like the highest level of this law is this sort of complete personality concealing. Um, but even on the very, very basic level, there's this question of if someone is asking you if you're going to vote them out and you are going to vote them out, you don't tell them you're going to vote them out. And in fact, what you do is you take it a step further and you make a fake plan. You dangle a fake plan to one of your victims to get them involved in this fake plan, and then they'll be completely blinded to your real plan. And this is a very, very common tactic in Survivor. Uh, and basically, everyone who's a really good strategist does, does this to some degree, where rather than just telling your target, you know, oh no, it's not you tonight, you're good, you say, not only is it not you, but we're actually voting for Jim. And, you know, we got to get all the team together to get Jim out. Uh, Jim's been a jerk recently. You know, really, Jim is this is our enemy and we really need to get him out. And so your your intended victim or your intended target is gets so caught up in this idea of, of voting out Jim that they just they don't see it coming at all. And uh, Russell was really, really good at this. And and like weirdly, one moment that sticks out to me about Russell's gameplay is when he he votes out Liz Kim in Survivor Samoa. Uh, this is just like one random example from all of the many examples of Russell and of every great strategist doing this. Um, and he he gets Liz involved in this idea that they're going to all vote out Jason. And, and Liz is like delighted with this scheme. But in fact, she is the target. You know, there's so many like little details of all of this stuff where, you know, the great ones always have a second plan. Like when this is done right, there's always like the real plan. And then there's always the plan that the mark is buying into. And so the question really becomes, well, how do you, how can you tell if you're getting the real plan or if you're getting the phony plan? And I did a podcast with Tyson earlier this season, and he had some really great insight into this because he was really great in his seasons of coming up with the with the fake plan, specifically in, in, in blood versus water. So it's like, okay, this is happening, but we need to be telling this person that, that this is happening. But he says that the key to telling if which you're getting the real plan or the fake plan is if whatever questions you're asking, they're just giving you the yes answers to shut you up. So if it's like, Hey, so, uh, what are we, should, are you think we should vote for Steven tonight? Oh yeah, you know what? That's a good point. Yeah, you know, okay, fine. Let's let's go with that. And so, if you are having just no pushback, nobody's resisting you on your suggestions about the plan. It probably means that you are not on board with the real plan. Well, this is what I think. You know, I think that's a big distinction between the best strategists. You know, is there is how deep their their story goes, right? right. Um, is that, you know, you had Tony this season where he convinced Sarah, you know, oh, I had this conversation with Cliff and like they, you know, Cliff was saying, we got to get out of Sarah. And I was saying, why Sarah? She's so, you know, it's this whole cover story that goes into it. And let me just say about Tyson, you know, we fooled Tyson with the fake plan and Tyson got fooled with the fake plan a couple of times. But he came back a number of times and then got, got wise to it. And so that Tyson talking about that, he, you know, he knows that the fake plan needs to be intricate now at right. this point. And so the, you know, he has like all of these ideas of like, you need to build a story and you, you need to have a convincing story. And the more crazy and like the more twists and turns that you can put into the story, the more believable it is. The bigger the lie, 
the more believable the lie, Stephen. And the other thing, too, is this if you give, you know, one thing that, that Robert Greene suggests is if you reveal a secret, people will trust you more. And so, you know, Russell was also really good at that, at showing people the idol. And then people would be would think, oh, Russell showed me his idol. I have an alliance with him now. And then he would turn on them. You know, this this idea that if you reveal something about yourself, people will trust you and that enables you to deceive them all the more. Like, you know, that's that's very effective. And it doesn't even have to be a real thing because one of the other things they mentioned in the book is the idea back to that revealing something about yourself. But it could be something, you know, totally fake, you know, or I was adopted and people are like, oh my God. And it's a, th- you're killing three birds or three birds with one stone by doing this, Stephen, because you get to appear that you are somebody who's friendly and open. You get to conceal your true intentions and you can also send people on a wild goose chase by like sort of like, you know, telling them something that is not true and their wheels are turning about stuff. And you can also send them on a fake plan by divulging a secret that you can share with them. And it's not even always just about strategy either, right? Sometimes it's also just, you know, conceal the fact that you hate someone. You know, if someone is a jerk and and they're around camp and they're always annoying you, you have two choices, right? You can Tell them what you think. You can keep it real and get up in their face and be like, you know, I, I hate you. You're a jerk. You know, you're you're a horrible person. Or you can smile to their face. You can lie to them a little bit. And that is ultimately going to serve you better, uh, both in Survivor and in life. You know, there's we're, we're constantly being put into situations with people who annoy us or people that we don't like for whatever reason. Uh, and Survivor basically casts people for that reason, like to be annoying. And you have this choice of either telling them what you really think, and that's the easier way out. You know, and if you can, if you're able to smile and pretend that you like them, you know, not only are you doing an actual service to the people around you and to the social life of the camp or your environment or your your job, you're you're ultimately able to to better accomplish your goals. Because people think that it's the nice thing to do. It's the humane thing to do. Oh, we should tell that person that they're getting voted out. But it doesn't go well. It's sort of like the you know, dull guillotine where it's like, uh, it takes, you know, it's, it's just not as clean and as sanitary for everybody involved than to just blindside somebody and not let them see it coming. And so there's, there's a great example in, in this, this recent season in, in Cagayan of someone who, you know, transgressed that law and that ended up completely blowing up in his face. Yes. And that would be early on in the season when Garrett decided that it would be best to talk in front of the group about what we're going to do, and then we'll have no side conversations. And so the decision was made, okay, Jatia is going to be the person voted out, and that's it, and nobody's allowed to talk about it. Yep, and uh, that didn't go very well. Everyone was incredibly annoyed about that, not least of whom, Jatia, who... uh, Upon being told that she was going to be voted out, I was she didn't she didn't take it particularly well. Mm-hmm. So now Garrett at that time had an alliance with Spencer, and I believe with with Cass, and then I think Tasha also thought that she was in the alliance. Now the the difficult thing was there was only five people in the group, so right. it was hard to sort of have a wild goose chase where you know that for Garrett to tell Jatia that okay 
we're going to vote out Cass tonight. And then that gets back to Cass. And she's like, hey, what? WTF, you're voting me out. So it's harder to do this sort of thing and have a smokescreen when there's less people. But what you definitely don't want to do is sort of do what Garrett did because it really did not work out well because it made it feel like not only did everybody else not have a say, but also it made him seem too much like he was the person calling all of the shots. And, uh, and she dumped out the rice. And then she dumped out all the rice also yeah. because she was very upset about all of this. So not only is it, a, is it a huge strategic mistake for Garrett, but it's also a huge personal mistake where, you know, he's both losing people's trust strategically and he's infuriating people personally to the point where they are going to all starve to death because of him. So when you're on Survivor, never let them see it coming. If you're in a, in a workplace, it's probably not a good idea to tell somebody they're going to be fired next week. It's just, you know, it's all, it's so hard, like emotionally to, to do these things. It seems very cold, but ultimately it's all for the best. And also again, with those sort of, with what you, you know, conceal what you really think a little bit, you know, Francesca in Redemption Island, when Boston Rob steps off the plane and she says, you know, this guy's got to be the first one out. You don't say that. You say, glad to have Rob around. Very excited to have him on the team. Uh, and then, you know, maybe you do some behind the scenes planning. But as soon as she says that, you know, as soon as she is honest, she's she's gone. So sure, there's a time and a place for honesty, always. But in life and in the game of Survivor, letting your competition know what you're doing can often be what gives them the advantage that they've been looking for. So always remember to be mindful of letting others know what you are really up to. Law four is a little bit of a corollary to the law three, and that is always say less than necessary. Yeah, this is really important because you see through the history of Survivor, there are some people that just, and in life, can't seem to help themselves and just talk and talk and talk and have nothing to say. Because the idea of silence, and I know this sounds crazy coming from me because I talk, you know, easily, <laughs> you know, 10 hours a week on a podcast. Sometimes the idea of the less you say, the more the other person that you're talking to, it's a power move. And yeah. so the, the more that the person that you're talking to feels the need to have verbal diarrhea and fill that gap. And the other person often will say things that they probably shouldn't say. And you can get a really good read on somebody just by not talking because the other person is just going to go, blah, 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 you know. Like, oh, okay, I guess I shouldn't say this. And apparently this is like actually one of Jeff Probst's interview tactics I've, I've heard is that in tribal council, he will, if he sees someone is like boiling over, he will just like not say anything and look at them and then they'll go off. I actually remember it happened one time in Token Sheens when uh, Jeff was talking to Taj and he was talking to her about how it felt to be the older lady and to have Sydney be the young hot girl. And Taj was clearly, it was clearly getting under her skin. And, and Jeff then was just silent and Taj just went off. It was, it was incredible. He didn't ask a question. He didn't say a thing. He just looked at her and she's like, I don't know what you're suggesting by this. I, it was amazing. 
also do this. Sometimes the less you say, the smarter you seem because you aren't like filling the air with all of this babble. Like a lot of times, you know, these people that come off as as not so smart on the show or don't get a lot of airtime, they actually talk a lot. They just are saying nothing. <laughs> and you could also have people who don't talk a ton in real life, but it's just what they're saying is really gold. And so they don't need to talk a lot. And if, if you don't talk a lot, you know, people think the things you're saying are almost like smarter than they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is true with like a lot of like actors that you don't see, like do like a lot of interviews. And I think that we probably might get some flack for this, or at least I might, but like a guy like Johnny Depp or Brad Pitt, like everybody's like, oh yeah, those guys are like really deep and like super smart. But I think it's much more that those guys just don't do a lot of interviews and you don't really know a lot about them. So we assume that they're like dark and mysterious and like smarter than they probably actually are. Am I? Are you, gonna, are you worried that you're going to get a call from Johnny Depp being like, listen, Rob, I'm actually very intelligent. <laughs> I think so. I'm yeah. sure they have, I'm sure they have a lot of fans, but yeah. The, but I think both of those guys, I, that you you don't see those guys doing like a lot of like talk show appearances and like aren't like out there. And I think that they both like have like this sort of like air of mystery about them and sort of like come off as like being very articulate and deep. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, it's just the, the power of silence. Yes. The, sa the sound of silence. And think about all the things that you don't think about me as being like, deep right. or mysterious or any of those yeah. things because I'm talking all the time but if I went you know then we have people and there's all these like message boards and stuff where it's like the people you never hear from it's like oh there's you know they're so great but it's because you never hear from them that's why you think they're so great if you heard from them all the time you'd realize they don't have anything good to say yeah that's smart of them though <laughs> it's very smart of them <laughs> yeah. to go away because if they came back it would be like for a second be like ah this person and then once you hear them it's like oh yeah they're actually not that good you probably have that all the time with guests who just like, come on, you know, the, the, the hard get. And then they're, and they're like, oh, oh, okay, fine. Oh, yeah. So it does, it does happen. You always want to say less than necessary. And there was a great example of that that happened this season, this past season on Survivor Kagiyan, where we had a tribe swap. And the way the tribe swap broke down was that we had tribes of seven and it ended up with the three brains tribe people sticking together in Cass and Spencer and Tasha. And then three people from the beauty tribe came over in Morgan and Alexis and uh, Jeremy, AKA Jeremiah. And those guys came over and they all wanted to flip immediately to the brains tribe. And they basically, all three of them were guilty on some level of just having, you know, verbal diarrhea of talking way too much. And it happens a lot on survivor where somebody who is, you know, after a merge, after any sort of like uh, tribe swap situation or Steven, I'm sure you even know from Exile Island where you have two people there at the same time. It's just you give up so much information. The person who is listening is always in the power position over the person that's talking when the tribes get together. I mean, this was definitely something I found on Survivor is that if you just sat back and listened, people would tell you their plans. You know, people cannot wait to talk about their plans. Um, so if you just do a good job of listening and asking questions, you can learn a lot. Um, another example that I really loved, and I, I feel like I probably talk about it too much, is when Malcolm sees on, on, in Survivor Philippines, Lisa Welchel sees Malcolm's idol because she's doing the laundry or something. And Malcolm knows that she's seen it, but he doesn't know exactly how much information he has. So Malcolm goes to Lisa 
And he takes her for a walk on the beach and he just gives her an expectant look. He doesn't say anything. And in fact, he even has a confessional about it where he like lays out this strategy. He says, I get her alone. I don't say a word. I just look at her. And Lisa fesses up. She speaks first. She tells him what, what he did, what she did. She tells him what she knows. And had Malcolm spoken first and said, what do you know? I have this idol, et cetera, et cetera. He gives away all of his information. He might give away more information than he has to, but by letting her speak first, he's able to control the information. Yeah, always a good idea to be a listener more than a talker. But Stephen, of course, like anything on Survivor, there are times when people did not follow uh, this rule. And, you know, this is a little bit of a controversial one because it was something that allegedly was in the edit, but not so much uh, in the actual accounts of the events, according to this person. But Stephen, in my season of Survivor the Amazon, there was a situation where we were heading into a tribe swap and the two youngest people got to get together. And Jenna Maraska and Dave Johnson went on like an overnight visit with each other. And uh, so they got to go like on a date and they basically, they gave them like alcohol and they got to have like a nice meal and they basically talked and talked and talked. Now in the episode, they made it seem as though Jenna divulged way more information than Dave Johnson did. Now Jenna, they really, they really gave Dave that hero edit, right? Cause yes. he went so deep. They really wanted to give him that yes. like so they, great edit. They yeah. said, we, we, we got to keep Dave Johnson looking good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you, the, for that Rob versus Dave season or the Dave that sucks. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So they, now Jenna says it the information was flowing both ways. Okay. So if that's the case, then it's a double negative. If the information was flowing both ways, but they made it seem as though Dave was listening and Jenna was the one doing most of the talking. So the following morning when Jeff Probst brings out the stuff to, they have like a draft and Dave Johnson knows that Jenna's number one ally is Heidi. And that's who he picked to go and join his team splitting up that alliance because he was able to hear Jenna's stories about how her and Heidi had been so close. Smart playing by Dave Johnson. <laughs> the, the immortal Dave Johnson. Bang, Rocket bang, scientist. Bang a rank, Stephen. Well. That's oh, yeah, what I'm here to do. Listening, yeah. listening, drafting. Uh, Stephen, what are, what are some other times that people have been able to take advantage of another player having verbal diarrhea? I mean, I think this is just every merge, right? There's always someone who's like going off about the tribe dynamics. Uh, I think it happened, you know, um, famously in Blood versus Water, right? When when the tribe, you know, when Tyson and, and Jervis merge with the, the new players and they talk, tell them where the idol is and they tell them all about the votes. And Tyson and Jervis just like look, listen and look back, you know, and uh, I'm sorry, they just look at each other and kind of smile, you know, and, and then the tribe basically tells them exactly where the idol is so Tyson can go and find it. Also from Survivor Australia, this is like an oldie, but a goodie. But they say that this is, this is something that happened off screen, but it's sort of become a Survivor folklore. At the first vote, and of course, the, in Survivor, the early seasons, it used to be previous votes was the tiebreaker. And right. so the Kucha tribe went to the first tribal council and everybody unanimously voted for Deb, Deb Eaton. But Deb Eaton got to cast her one vote. And she cast her vote for Jeff Varner. 
And so as they're up on top of the waterfall, waiting for the second, uh, I think it was the reward challenge where the Butch Cassidy jump off the water fountain, uh, well, I'm sorry, waterfall challenge. Well, jumping off a water fountain would not be very exciting. I could do that. Yeah. So you had this, uh, they were waiting around and Tina in her very sweet voice asked like, so who all did Deb vote for? And Kimmy Kappenberg said, oh, he votes for Jeff. And then <laughs> it's like, oh, so when we get to the merge, of course, it's a five, five scenario. And so the Ogakor tribe, they know where to put their five votes, put them on Jeff Varner, because at least we know he had gotten a vote cast for him. Whereas the Kucha tribe voted for Colby, thinking that he had had a vote cast for him, which he had not. And Jeff Varner ends up going home and voted out because Kimmy Kappenberg uh, talked when she should not have. Everything would have been different if Mike Scoopin hadn't fallen in the fire. It's important to remember that when you talk, you always have to say the right thing. It's so much easier just to say nothing. Let others wonder what you're thinking and leave the need to fill the silence to those around you who often can't wait to tell you exactly what you need to know. Law five is so much depends on reputation. Guard it with your life. Now, Stephen, reputations are always very important. That's why I have only the highest reputation that uh, nobody says I suck or anything like that. So, Stephen, why else is it important for people to have good reputations? I mean, basically, the, the, the idea behind this law is that you never really know anybody, right? You never know truly what anybody is thinking. You never know what they're going to do. And to a certain degree, you know, you really never even know what someone's core character is. All you really know about people is their reputation. So when you're deciding how to interact with that person, when you're trying to gauge how that person will act in the future, all you really have to go on is their reputation. And so it's so important to have a good reputation or at least a reputation that serves your purposes because people will look more to your reputation than to the truth of who you are. Yeah, I think that's really true in business and in Survivor and and in just about everything where it's like, oh, I don't want to take on that person because they're, they're so good. But like once you have like a little bit of a crack in that, in your reputation, of either your company or yourself that it's like, oh, that's that's going downhill. That's ripe for I'm going to come after that person. Whereas your reputation can be sort of like a castle of that keeps you sort of safe from people coming after you. Because if people think that you are strong or that you have this reputation for coming back at people who come after you, then that keeps people away. But if you have a reputation for being weak and being able to be vulnerable, then that might invite more people to come after you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, this is something that we see a lot in uh, returning player seasons where the person's reputation almost is more important for how they do in the game than anything else about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stephen, this is true on Twitter, too, because there are some people that I know if they can't take a joke or if they're going to never get over something, then I just won't talk about them on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> that's really smart. That's what I do think about for social media because right. I say, oh, oh, this person is not a good sport and I don't want to deal with this person for the next couple months of 
talking about what a jerk I am. So I'm not, I'm not even going to, you know, anything about this person, I'm just not even going to engage. Right, right. It's like Shannon Elkins. You know, you never want to talk about Shannon Elkins. And here I am disobeying the number one law of Shannon Elkins. Well, he's mellowed out over the years. His his reputation has taken a hit that he's not, he doesn't take things as seriously anymore. Or maybe he's got this reputation. You know, maybe he worked hard to establish this reputation uh, as a lunatic. And uh, now he can just be himself. Who's like a really loving, nice, chill guy. No, because people are, are afraid of him. But he didn't guard the reputation of being a lunatic with his life, and right. so now, now people, you and I can speak freely about him in an audio book and not risk that he's gonna, you know, uh, for the next month, be uh, making fun of us on Twitter. I mean, what about Tony? Do you think he's going to talk about, you know, you don't, you don't want to say anything bad about Tony because then he'll insult uh, the cleanliness of your eyewear. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So let's start to um, talk about this in the survivor's perspective of why is a reputation important to a survivor player? I mean, I think, you know, with Survivor, it is largely about like returning player seasons, right? You can establish a little bit of a reputation within your own season, but this is one where we're sort of talking about the meta game, where someone comes into an all-star season and people have this idea of them. I mean, you know, the, the classic one is Boston Rob and Russell on Survivor Redemption Island, where Boston Rob and Russell are both aggressive players, they're both strategic players, and they are both people who really play uh, to get to the end. You know, you can say Russell doesn't play to win, but Russell's playing to win, right? And Boston Rob is playing to win. But coming off of Survivor Heroes versus Villains, Boston Rob had this stellar reputation. And the reason was because he did badly. He was voted out at the very beginning before he had to turn on his alliance. So all of these people who are on Survivor uh, Redemption Island have this idea, wow, Boston Rob is loyal. He's a guy who sticks by his alliance. He doesn't turn on people. And that was largely because he didn't have the opportunity to turn on people. You know, he would have voted out all his allies on Survivor Heroes versus Villains if he had been given the chance. But because he has this great rep, everybody completely trusts him. You know, whether Grant or Andrea, Ashley, Matt, every one of these people is is completely gulled by him because of his amazing reputation. Um, And then, of course, when he ultimately does betray him, they're completely totally shocked and and blindsided that this you know perfect human being would would dare do that and, and then conversely you have russell on the other side of that where russell because he does go to the end in both samoa and uh, survivor heroes versus villains has this horrible reputation as a schemer as a blindsider as a liar and so when he gets into survivor redemption island everybody wants him out immediately yeah, it was such a dr- drastic difference of Rob and Russell like getting off the helicopter in that season where it was like the Boston Rob team was like, yeah, we got Boston Rob. And then the Russell team was like, oh, we got Russell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, like if, if Rob had gotten to the end, you know, they would have, everyone would have thought he was a villain too. And you have Russell coming back after playing two seasons so short after one another. This would be like if they brought Boston Rob back two seasons after Boston Rob had a Russell-esque season in Survivor All-Stars where Boston Rob was seen as the guy who was, you know, cutting everybody's throats. But there had been five years in between when Boston Rob had played last and when there actually, I think it was even six years between those two times playing the game. So people had forgotten about a lot of the stuff they did and they only remembered Boston Rob's game from Survivor Heroes versus Villains. So if Boston Rob comes back within a year of playing 
then he's looked at totally different. And Steven, even somebody like myself, where I come back a year after playing the game, now I come into my second game with a reputation that is not one that's favorable for me as far as my survivor game goes. And I do think that this isn't just about, though, returning players. I think returning players is where it's clearest because, you know, your reputation is established over the season. But I do think there's a little bit of that even within a season itself. I'm thinking of token sheens where JT was able to create this reputation as being this, you know, amazing, good old boy, decent guy. And somehow, you know, he was able to actually vote people out and blindside them and yet keep this reputation so people weren't um, hurt by him. You know, we had this this one challenge where everyone said they would trust their lives with JT. Um, and and so even while he was playing the game hard, he was able to keep that reputation. Uh, and, and that served him incredibly well in the final travel where he beat a really, really good um, competitor and, and shut him out. Um, what, what anyone else who's, who sort of was not able to maintain their reputation in, in the game itself? You know, I'm thinking about this more in the terms of, you know, I like to think of this inside the game and outside the game where you have people who, you know, have are thought of in a certain way of having their reputation of like, Oh, Parvati's rep- reputation is she's the flirt or right. you have, uh, you know, somebody else's reputation is that they're they're the schemer or they're this person or they're funny. And it's really important to guard that reputation because that's sort of like your branding. And it's really important when you start to get into like people who start to come back multiple times. Like, for instance, somebody like a Rupert who has this reputation of, oh, he's a lovable pirate guy. And it's sort of like, well, if you lose that sort of being the lovable guy, like, where are you then? Right. So that's also really important to think about as far as, you know, you have this reputation. This is what you're known as. And if you stop being this, you know, where are you? And, you know, one thing that Green talks about, too, is ways to actually undermine other people's reputations as a strategic offensive maneuver. Just because reputation is so important, if you are able to uh, spread rumors about your rivals, if you're able to take them down using mockery, suddenly their reputation gets punctured and they don't have that shield that's so important. Yeah, but you have to be really careful about something like this because if you come off as too aggressive, it makes you look bad and it sort of hurts your reputation. But, you know, you can really sort of, you know, take somebody down with sort of like a joke or by starting to talk about something that maybe is a strength for them. But then you end up sort of like poking a hole in it and it ends up being something that becomes kind of a liability for them because it's something that people just make fun of all the time. And one one of my I've never actually seen Guatemala, but one of my favorite examples of this actually is from Guatemala. I know this this is the one moment in Guatemala I'm familiar with where Brian Corden has this uh, bait Blake idea where uh, Blake has this reputation of being the golden boy. And so Brian keeps on kind of egging him into telling these golden boy stories. And it it, it leads to Blake being completely um, to the, to his stellar reputation sort of getting completely undermined. Now, did Brian Corridan 
Uh, is this part of him building up his golden boy reputation that he got you to talk about this? <laughs> no, I do love Brian, so I'm always happy to talk about this. I think I probably read it on Suck somewhere, and it just seemed like such a perfect, a perfect and very subtle, you know, play of the game. Yeah, and that's exactly why your reputation is so important. It's the biggest factor in how others are going to perceive you. When you have a reputation of strength, your enemies will think twice about coming after you. But when your reputation is weak, your opponents won't hesitate to make their moves against you. Law six is court attention at all costs. And this on its, you know, is a little bit contradictory with some of the earlier laws we've talked about, like never outshine the master. And it does go to show that a lot of these laws are really just situation specific. So uh, tell me, tell me about this law, Rob. Yeah, I know what you mean by like, well, if I'm not outshining the master, how am I courting attention at all costs? And I think that part of that comes down to well, sometimes you're the master and sometimes you're not. And so there are certain ways that you can court attention. Like if you want to make sure you don't outshine the, the master, you know, there's different ways and different people that you can court attention from. Just maybe you don't want to outdo somebody who's your superior. But, you know, everything about power is about getting attention. And especially in the context of what we're talking about, of people going on a reality TV show, that's almost more important than the money for a lot of the people. You know, winning the million dollar prize is great, but being the famous person who gets brought back a number of times and being a celebrity and really, you know, playing Survivor is great, but being able to have a lifetime of being in the public spotlight seems even more desirable for a lot of people who end up getting into the reality TV genre. Right. And so, I mean, we've obviously seen a lot of people who are incredibly good at this, according attention. Um, you know, you've got Tony this season who creates his spy shack and who just, you know, every one of his confessionals, he chooses the scenery, you know. And so Tony's a really strong strategic player, but he also does these things that are a little bit beyond that, right? That, that where he's just really playing to the cameras and trying to create a persona for himself. And of course, there are people who have perfected the art of a persona creation on Survivor. Well, you played with somebody like that who was bigger than life character that was like sort of like playing a character. Maybe you can go back to even Johnny Fairplay beforehand, but this is somebody who was really a ham and got everybody talking about that. And that was coach in Survivor Token Chains. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny, you know, I think he sort of evolved into it over time where he sort of saw that the more he created this character, the more attention he got, which led him to make it a bigger and bigger character. So he goes from, you know, being Ben, who no one ever called him Ben. He comes into the game calling himself coach. Now he's already sort of creating a brand for himself, right? I'm coach. I'm not a, a name. I'm a, I'm a character. I'm a figure. And then of course, about halfway through the season, he decides that coach is, you know, pretty basic compared to the dragon slayer. <laughs> Talk more about some of the things that Coach had done to sort of court attention. 
Well, so, I mean, you know, I, I miss some of these things because they happened on Timbira, but, you know, we saw him conducting uh, a symphony, you know, in, in front of everybody in the shelter, you know, predicting the weather. And then, of course, uh, when I joined when, at the merge, we would hear these stories from Coach about, well, this this trip he took in the Amazon where he was caught for days on end and only escaped in his kayak. And, you know, you'd ask him questions like, Oh, what did you eat while you were, you know, in your kayak for six weeks? He's like, well, I had power bars and nobody knew what these power bars were. So they didn't take them, you know, just so he he would create these ridiculous over the top stories. um, And, you know, he gave everybody else nicknames, too. So I was the wizard and JT was the warrior and uh, Debbie. uh, Debbie was little Debbie. So, you know, there seems to didn't didn't do that well. (laughs) That one didn't stick. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um. But but you know he really like brought this kind of theater to to the the, the game and that it really was rewarded with it not only with a ton of, of airtime in my season but then being brought back over and over again and probably as long as Survivor exists Coach Coach will be a, a recurring character and this idea is really about you just want everybody thinking about what you're going to do next what are you going to say next and I think one of the people that has done this really well in real life out of the survivor world is Miley Cyrus where Miley Cyrus like for a year almost that you couldn't do anything but but talk about what Miley was doing and you know there'll always be like some headline of like oh Miley Cyrus is doing this Miley Cyrus is doing that and I feel like to me that she seems very calculated in in what she does that she was somebody who was like a child star and unlike somebody who's like a Justin Bieber who's like getting in trouble all the time like everything that Miley Cyrus is doing that's shocking is always on a stage. So she has is somebody who's able to court attention. And that's ideally what you want to do. And that's what I think they're talking about more in, in the book of just being somebody who's just top of mind all the time of, oh, what's this person doing? And what is this person going to do next? I can't wait to hear more from this person because that being in people's thoughts in itself is power. And, you know, I don't even think it has to be on Survivor something ridiculous. You know, you don't have to make a spy shack. You don't have to call yourself, uh, you know, a fictional name. You know, someone like Parvati is the perfect example of this, where she is incredibly flirtatious on this show. She's mysterious. And people just have this built up idea of her that, you know, she is this Matahari or she's this, you know, incredible flirts sex goddess woman of of you know impossible power i think for a couple of reasons uh one i think that she has like there's a couple people in survivor that they have like a specifically branded game like if i said to you oh she's playing the parvati game well everybody everybody knows what that's like if you look at all of the previews you go on cbs.com any season there's at least six or seven people oh i'm gonna play the game like a parvati so She's become like synonymous with a certain way of playing the game. She's very top of mind of everybody that goes through casting. And that's power. It makes her seem even larger than life. But there's also an air of mystery about her that she has a name that have you ever met another Parvati? No. So, I mean, if her name was Melissa, then she wouldn't have as much power as she as she has because she would seem more common but because she seems like this person who has you know this air of mystery 
about her. And you've seen in Survivor games like a Natalie Bolton and people who will follow her because right. she seems like this, you know, mysterious and powerful person that she seems just seems to be so cool and, and collected that, you know, girls want to be her friends and guys want to get with her. And she has this air of mystery and is always courting attention from everybody. She's a seductress. And that's one of the other ways that you can gain attention from people in Survivor. And I, I think with Parvati, you know, too, we see this evolution in her where on Cook Islands, you know, she's flirtatious and that's fine. It's it's one dimension. You know, she, she doesn't have this sort of larger than life persona. But when she comes back on a Micronesia, you know, she really combines this flirtatiousness with strategy and is able to be much more calculating about the way she is presenting herself as a character and as a person. And then, of course, by the time you get to heroes versus villains, uh, people just have this idea of Parvati. You know, Coach says, uh, Parvati, in my opinion, is the most dangerous person on our tribe. She's got the charm. She's got the smile. And for some reason, when she pays attention to you, you feel like you light up. It's not that you don't see it. It's that they're allured by her charm. It's unbelievable. So Coach is saying here that even while he acknowledges you know, that poverty is working him, you know, or her mystic wiles are enchanting him. He, you know, even while he's aware of it, he's unable to resist it. And so, you know, she, she's someone who, you know, came into the game in her first season as, as a flirty girl, cute, you know, girl, and then really is able to sort of through, you know, very conscious strategic moves become much bigger than, than herself. Now, Stephen, what about people who didn't do a good enough job of courting attention? What does that look like? Yeah, uh, you know, it looks like all the great strategists who played smart under the radar games, but uh, didn't, you know, aren't aren't huge figures in the in the show who aren't brought back and who, you know, when when they're on the subway or on the streets of New York, no one no one knows who they are. But <laughs> in addition to you know know it alls like yourself though. Aren't there winners, too, that didn't do a good job of courting attention? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a great point is that you have these – I mean, you know, you have these winners who probably won't be brought back because – unless there's an all-winner season because they were sort of – they were more strategic or than they were, you know, characters. And, you know, Sophie's an interesting example of that, someone who, you know, played a really smart game. As we saw, she did a great job of never outshining the master. But – you know, she wasn't courting attention at all costs. So it's one of these things where, um, you know, one law applies in one situation. You might not be able to enact another law, which would apply to a different situation. Yeah, there's almost a law of, okay, this is the one law to get a million dollars. If that's your goal, to get to Survivor, win the game, and get out, that's fine. But I feel like that the person who wants to be on Survivor wants it all. You want to get on the show. You want to get the money, you want to get the airtime, and you want to get invited back, and you want the celebrity that goes along with being a winning reality TV person, of course, and you want to be thought of as smart and funny and wonderful and all, all of these things. So there's a lot of different directions that get you pulled in. And ultimately, if you accomplish all of these things, then you get power. And you are, you know, that's the best case scenario. Now, there's different versions of that. And so, you know, we're talking about many different things that go into part of the survivor experience. 
And it's, the, you know, it's the best players of all who are able to do both these things, right? So you have the Boston Rob who is able to both win the game and be the big character. Um, and so, you know, it's truly the greatest people who can put all of the laws into effect whenever they're appropriate at the right time and, and, you know, achieve everything that they want. So always be courting attention from those around you. It might seem like a trivial thing to do, but when others are constantly thinking about what you're doing, your base of power grows among your allies. In addition, you'll find that when you have your enemy's attention, they'll be much less focused on what they should be doing themselves. Law 7 is get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Now, this seems like a pretty good idea, Stephen. What does this law specifically mean to you? I mean, this is, this is basically, you know, get the people around you to do the legwork, you know, take advantage of the skill set of those around you, um, which, you know, then, then you sort of save yourself time and energy. Um, but then if you're able to take credit for their work, you seem to be incredibly competent. You have an aura of efficiency and speed and, uh, the helpers are always the ones who, for, who are forgotten. And the person who's in the spotlight is the one who is remembered. Yeah. It seems like the way that this always works is the person who really has the power actually seemingly does nothing. And it's the person who does all of the backbreaking labor, who actually does the work, is the person who doesn't get any of the credit. Right. And, but they did all the work. Yeah. And so being the powerful person is say, figuring out how do I get to the position where I'm the one who's not breaking a sweat, who is not doing all of the grunt work and is basically reaping all the benefits. Right, right. I mean, the right, that's the question. Like, how do you get, you know, not just get the task accomplished, but get the most credit for being the one to accomplish the task? And, you know, we see that a lot in Survivor where people who do a lot of great strategic things are often not the ones who are acknowledged by the jury as being the real master. <laughs> that's right, because yeah. in Survivor... The credit looks like, one, the opinions of the viewing audience at home, and two, the credit is also the people who are on the jury voting for you to give you the million dollars. Right. So let's talk about some of these times where somebody has gotten others to do all of the work, but taken all of the credit. And this was happened in a, a number of different seasons, but... One season that I want to talk about in particular is in Survivor Australia, where you had Tina and Colby, who were this pair throughout most of the game. And you had the famous decision where Colby, who had won so many of the immunity challenges down the stretch and had done a lot of the legwork for this alliance, ultimately takes Tina to the end where she's the person who is able to win the game. Yeah. And, you know, I think we see that a lot where, you know, and, and uh, Survivor Karamoan is another example where you have Cochrane and Dawn. Now, 
Uh, Dawn obviously did not play a great social game, but she did play a very good strategic game. And a lot of the key moves in that se- in that season were because of what Dawn was willing to do. You know, she was able to gather information from Corinne and then use it to blindside Corinne. Um, and, and, you know, she she did this with Brenda as well, where she, you know, she built this bond with Brenda and used that bond to blindside Brenda. And when they get there to the finals, people aren't, you know, thinking about Dawn as a strategic mastermind. They're thinking of her as this, incre- you know, this personal betrayer, whereas Cochrane, people think of as this great strategic player. And he was a very smart strategic player, but, you know, he really was dependent on the legwork and the hard moves that Dawn made. And he sort of was able to get the credit for playing this great game while she kind of had to do a lot of the grunt work and really got a lot of the blame for those negative things. See, Survivor is interesting because the concept of the work is really an interesting one because in this instance of getting a jury to vote for you, the idea of get others to do the work for you but take the credit is that you want to tell the jury how you made moves, that everything that happened was my idea. I was the one running the show, but you also don't want to have the blood on your hands. So during the, when the game is happening, there's almost like a sense of like, well, that wasn't my idea. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not the one who wanted to vote this person out. And so the, it's sort of like a two prong thing that you're trying to do is that you're trying to get to the end and not get blood on your hands and not make it look like the idea for all of these blind sides and all these bad things that happened was you. But at the same time, when it gets to the end of the game, you want to be the one to take credit for it. So Survivor is even harder to do this than to say, like, you know, how do you get people in your office to write reports for you? And then when you hand them into the superior, that the superior is like, oh, Stephen, grow, bravo. This is one. Right. This is one hell of a of a TPS report you did for us today. <laughs> I mean, and you know what? A well-functioning corporation, actually, everybody can get credit along the way, right? Like you get credit for for the work of your underlings, but you also give them credit, you know, from yourself. So there's, you know, like that's like a good functioning organization. Most organizations not well-functioning, and there is a little bit of a need to sort of jockey to be sure to be the one who's named. Yeah, and it also goes both ways. Like I don't know. You know, this law doesn't speak to giving credit to your underlings or the people that are that are on your team. This talks about taking the credit. But if you are one of the underlings that this talks about giving the credit to your supervisor, to your, you know, you know, hey, without the guidance of Steven, you know, we couldn't have, you know, gotten nearly all the work that we got done. Right. Right. And, and so that ties back into that first law of never outshine the master of, you know, always giving credit and especially like in a tribal council situation that you sort of, you know, want to throw the, you know, things back to, you know, well, if it wasn't for coach, you know, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be as tight of a tribe as we are. So you do want to give credit to the people in charge. And I think that was something that I don't remember. Someone said to me, maybe it was Cochran said to me, or maybe it was uh, uh, JT's that I don't know, I think it was Cochran that the people on the jury want to like want this sense that their place in the game is is iconic and remembered and that they're still a part of things. So he said that he did made a real attempt to kind of r- bring the people from the jury back into their story, into his storytelling so that they could feel a part of it. And, and that as a result, they would like by basically voting for him, they would feel good about their place in the game. 
All right, Stephen, let's talk about the uh, transgression of the law. Has there ever been a time where somebody did all the work and then didn't get the credit on Survivor? I, d- I don't think so. Probably that it's never happened before. No, look, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of people have said to me, uh, you know, you did a lot of the work for JT, um, you know, whether or not, you know, from, from my perspective, it was a good partnership. Um, but certainly I felt like I did a lot of the strategic work and didn't get any of the credit. So that was, you know, and that's on me. I don't blame myself for that. I mean, sorry, I don't blame JT for that. That was, it was my fault not doing a better job of, of making sure people knew what I was doing in the game, making sure people saw my role as a strategic force rather than just as JT's sidekick. So what could you have done better? I think there's a way where like, you know, there's a way to position yourself when you talk to people in the game and say, you know, well, you know, I think Yule did it really well with in, in, in Cook Islands where he really made people think he was the mastermind. You know, they would come to him and talk to him. I tried to do a more sort of like team consensus kind of building uh, strategy where I was like, well, we're all make, figuring this out together. I think you do want to position it as I am going to make this decision, you know, so that uh, people know that you're sort of the deciding force. And, you know, I think I also could have sort of portrayed, maybe maybe done a better job of characterizing JT, you know, not in an accurate way, but in a strategic way. I was like, oh, this, this you know, this Southern yokel, you know, what does he know? So it's like, rather than just work on building myself up, I also work on minimizing the credit that he gets. Yeah, how much of that can you do without starting to look bad yourself? I mean, that's the difficulty, right? This, that's why it's such a, a crucial and challenging law of power is that it's really hard to be uh, both strategic, to blindside people, to make sure you get the right amount of credit, um, and then to make sure that other people get the blame. And uh, that's why, you know, the people who win by doing this deserve their wins. That's why JT deserves his win so well. That's why Cochran deserves his win. It's because they were able to get to to pull off that trick. Now, if you're in a season with all new people on it, I mean, how do you go from just being a person that shows up to being a person who's getting the other people to do the work for you and take the credit? Right. That's a, that's a, I, I mean, it, I, it's almost natural, right? I, I don't know. What do you think, Rob? Like, my take on this is that it's almost just a natural thing that happens based on your personality. You know, my personality is a little bit more I like to move I like to do things behind the scenes. I don't like to be out in front of a project. You know, I like to kind of make things happen in the shadows, uh, so to speak. I mean, not hey, in real, you know. You sound yeah. like you're like a Batman villain. <laughs> well, I, you know, I just have really bad lights in my office. Ah. Um, yeah. No, no, I mean, I like, to, I like to build, you know, I like to do things behind the scenes rather than like, you know, in the meeting, I'm never the person who's going to be like, stand up and say, I think we should do this. And this is my project. And that's just a temperament thing. Um, I would rather wait till after the meeting and then kind of meet with each person individually and then make the project happen. So I think uh, to a certain degree on Survivor, there's just this this element of your temperament becomes your strategy. And if you have a temperament that, you know, is good at, uh, you know, is good at being that person who says, I think we should do this and here I am and here's what we're doing, you know. I mean, I think, you know, listening to to, to this uh, audio book and sort of thinking about how to become that bigger character, uh, what do you think? I think that there's sort of like a fine line between being the person who's able to tell everybody what to do but and take the credit but not be seen as the person who everybody sort of hates. Like in this season of Survivor and Survivor Kageon, you know, everybody shows up on the Brains Tribe on the beach and Jatia says, hey, I am a 
what was she, a nuclear engineer. And I know how to build the shelter. So everybody listen to me and we'll do that. And we saw so much eye rolling and everybody like, does she know what she's doing? Where as somebody in the past where, you know, to go back to Boston Rob, where he shows up on the beach and he knows how to build the, the shelter and he's telling everybody, okay, let's put this over here. Let's do this over here. And, you know, of course he's doing some, some of the work himself, but, you know, he didn't do all of the work, but he probably enjoys all of the credit. So right. I think there's sort of like a knowledge base that you need to have. I don't think you can just show up and just n- not know anything on Survivor. But once you demonstrate that you have sort of a leadership history, like a Tom Westman or somebody who's sort of like a born leader, I think you can get away with not doing all of the work, but taking a lot of that credit. I mean, what what about you, Rob? You know, you go out third on Survivor of the Amazon. Everyone acknowledges you sort of as the strategic force of that season. You know, uh, even certainly the jury did. I think there was some question where someone, Jenna or Matt, was like, yeah, and Rob obviously deserves to be here. Um, do you think, though, that if you get there to the finals, people feel, you know, it's it's one thing if you're blindsided or you're voted out, you know, people, it's easier for people to give you the credit. Do you think people are going to be, would, would have been angry at you um, had you been there in the finals? And if not, uh, why not? The people in the jury? Yeah. I think that people in the jury would have been upset with me, certainly uh, some of the people, but Stephen, I don't think I'm particularly good at not doing the work and taking the credit for it. I think that one of my failures is that I try to take on too much work and I have a hard time of letting other people do the work. And I feel like if I was better at delegating stuff that I think I would be able to get even more done. So I feel like this is something that I personally struggle with because I don't know how to have other people do the work and take the credit. You need more interns. (laughs) Yeah, I need, I need something. I need something, but I just feel like, ah, oh, I got to be involved with that. And right. so I end up, you know, end up doing uh, so, uh, you know, so much of the work a lot of times where I feel like I'm just spread too thin. Yeah, no, 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 I, I totally. And even in my Survivor game, you know, not even talking about like the stuff I'm involved with now, like I was like, oh, okay, I got to go. I got to do this. I got to go do this. And I was like a nervous wreck by the end of the game. And you know, I didn't, What you know, but I think that's kind of Survivor. I feel like that I, I wouldn't advise anybody to sort of delegate more on Survivor because you need to make sure that you're a part of all those conversations that happen. Right. So when it comes time for the credit to be handed out for a job well done in front of your supervisor, a teacher, or the Survivor jury, make sure that you are positioned to be the one to take credit for all that work because if you don't, Your rivals almost certainly will. All right, law eight is make other people come to you. Use bait if necessary. So the idea of this is that you want to keep the other people reacting to what you're doing rather than acting on any of their own plans. So... You keep doing stuff and other people keep trying to follow your lead on what's happening. And that's that's really important because the person who is the overly aggressive person, especially if you can make somebody start to lose their cool a little bit and they're trying to outdo what you're doing, 
you're getting them off their game and they're not going to be able to be in control as much as they want to because the aggressive person is not an effective person. So you are basically going to come up with your own plans and keep the other people that you are in your office, in your organization, in your tribe, you want to keep everybody else off balance and just following and keeping an eye on what your next move is. And, and you know, you also still in that you want the opponent to think that they're still in control of the situation. You know, you want them to be pursuing the thing, their goals and their desires, and you want them to be run, to be sort of motivated by their greed and their emotions so that what you're kind of setting out this bait uh, but your your opponent is coming for it because of their sort of short-sighted fixation on their immediate goals and needs while you're kind of thinking about the longer-term game. If you can lure your opponent to do what you want them to do, then you're ultimately getting over on them. And, and you can maneuver yourself to be able to get them to do a move that isn't going to necessarily be in their best interest to do. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty like hard law to think about abstractly. Um, but, you know, I do think this is actually something that applies to a lot of uh, really interesting survivor situations. And that's especially where we have uh, small tribes uh, coming in to emerge against a much larger tribe um, or just small groups being in a situation where there's a much bigger group. And, and you know, one one recent one was Philippines, where after the merge, uh, you know, or even after the swap, you have Denise and you have Malcolm, who are small independent operators. These swing votes, they put themselves in the position where uh, the other bigger alliances are coming to them and they're like being used so, the, the, you know, you have Pete's Alliance or you have Jeff Kent's Alliance who are, you know, they're so focused on getting out their own specific targets that they don't see so how, you know, Malcolm and Denise are kind of pulling things behind the strings. And, and this is what JT and I did as well and Taj in a Survivor Token Chains is we had a much bigger, you know, we, we merged uh, against Timbira, who was twice our size, uh, but they're sort of, so we kind of said to them, you know, Hey, who do you want us to take out? Who do you want gone? Um, and we let them sort of, uh, you know, through their own kind of short term desires, basically we, we laid the trap where they then picked each other off while we sort of kind of kept on putting out these little, you know, lures to sort of tempt them to, to keep on turning on each other. Yeah. This is sort of, the strategy for if you are not in a good position, but you realize that you are a valuable piece to somebody else, you know, you don't want to go to them and come off as desperate as like, hey, here's why you need me. Like the move for you is to sort of get the other person to see that they need you to sort of like have them take your bait and be able to then, you know, come to you with some sort of a deal for why you should do that. And then you have the power once again, even though in more often than not in this case, you are the less powerful entity here in this sort of scenario. And, you know, a great example of this too is, is in Survivor Samoa, which we're talking about a lot, where Foa Foa merges with Galoo. And, you know, Galoo is, is just 
obviously we're going to pick these guys off straight down the line. You know, we're going to vote out Foa Foa one by one. But then Natalie White puts out this sort of lure like, hey, don't you guys want to take out Eric? Um, and then the Galoos sort of, you know, they do want to take out Eric. Uh, and then they kind of like let their short-term desire to take out Eric sort of blind them against their long-term need to take out these Foa Foas. So how do you resist this uh, sort of temptation? Like if somebody's trying to get you to react, how do you avoid taking the bait? Right. That's that's a tough one. That's That's interesting. I, I think it just comes down to who's got the sort of better long-term, you know, vision, you know, and I think that, um, you know, a great example of a big tribe staying together, right, is Boston Rob's tribe in Redemption Island or even Phillip's tribe in, um, you know, Survivor Karamoan. The, the buddy the, system? Is that what well, you need? But, but it's not even the buddy system so much as it is like this complete, um, you know, there were a lot of examples of of people from – the, the smaller tribe in, in Redemption Island who were, you know, they were trying to get some of the girls to flip on Rob and they were, they were laying out the bait. They were saying, um, you know, you need, you know, now's your only time. You need us. Like now's your chance to make a move. The bait was there. And, and Rob had just sort of, you know, individually kind of convinced each of these people that they were going to the end with him and that they could win. So I think it's, you know, it's a question of making, you know, having having one strategist be be better, right? Have stronger, better bait. So just you know, stay true to your convictions and stay loyal, and then don't give in to some of these other people that are trying to bait you with tempting offers, because ultimately those offers are just going to benefit them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. That's that's just it. You know, you've got it. Well, you know, in that case, like it might have it might have behooved the girls to flip. But, you know, the point was there is that, you know, you had a better strategist who had laid better bait first. Another instance that we could talk about where somebody broke this law, where we had a transgression of somebody who was in a powerful position, but ended up taking the bait and reacting to somebody else was in Survivor Africa. And shortly after the merge, when there was a vote to take out Clarence, there were people from the Samburu tribe who were starting to get picked off. There was only a couple people left from that. I think it was just uh, Fr- uh, Frank and T-Bird and Brandon and Kim Powers were in the minority alliance. And so what had happened was they voted out Clarence there and T-Bird had cast a vote against Lex and Lex didn't know who cast the vote in his direction. So you got an instance where then Lex went on the offensive and started trying to suss out who was the rat in his midst. And so he ended up looking and looking and looking for somebody, the person who could have cast this vote and he ends up taking out somebody in his own alliance in Kelly Goldsmith and doesn't have doesn't even realize that it was T-Bird who was the one that planted this vote against him and ends up doing something that's very aggressive and was totally reactionary and not something that was in his own best interest. 
Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, it just comes down to sort of being in control of yourself and being in control of your emotions. And then, you know, especially in a game like Survivor where people get do get so heated, if you are in control of your emotions, you can sort of put out these little things knowing that the people around you are going to be erratic, emotional and hot headed and aren't going to be as in control of themselves. So remember, the next time you really need something from someone who's in the position of power, figure out the bait to get them to come to you. You'll have much more success once others start to believe that you're the one that has exactly what they need. Law nine is win through your actions, never through arguments. Stephen, why is this such an important law that we need to remember here? Yeah, I think this this law really will resonate for anybody who has any experience in life at all, which is that if someone is trying to convince you of something just by arguing with you, you're never going to be fully convinced. And the argument itself is actually going to make you upset at them. It's going to create a negative experience. Um, and it's actually going to have a sort of ultimately negative impact. Whereas if you show someone through your actions that you, that you can do something, that you're right, um, you're going to, you're going to prove your point and not have to engage in sort of the, the vile muck of argument. Yeah. And this is sort of like a twofold thing where they do a really good demonstration in the 48 Laws of Power book that talks about this. One part of this is when you are trying to make your point and you are trying to change somebody's mind, the best thing that you can do is to do it through actions and not through telling the other person why they're wrong because that will just piss them off and get them annoyed at you. And then the other way around, when somebody is trying to change your mind and convince you of something, you're better off not arguing your point, but you're better off just telling them, oh, you know what, you're right. I think that that is a really better idea, but not really do with what they're saying. And the, the demonstration that they give of that, that Robert Greene gives in the book, was that Michelangelo had someone who was trying to basically give him notes on the statue of David and tell him that the nose was too big and he like basically like went up there with his chisel and some dust and basically like blew the <laughs> dust around and made it. And then the guy's like, oh, you saved it. Oh, it's so much better now. And Michelangelo didn't actually do anything. So if somebody's giving you criticism, you're always better to take the criticism, even if you don't actually believe it. And these are also good laws if you go on American Idol or Shark Tank or any of these other shows where there's judges, Stephen. Yeah. I mean, and that, you know, that, that example actually shows not just like, you know, how you should react to someone who is arguing with you, which is just to sort of politely agree with them. Um, but also the reason not to argue yourself, which is that at best you're going to have someone politely agree with you and not really be fully convinced. And, you know, that's certainly true on something with Survivor, whereas if, you, where if you're trying to argue a plan of action, you're trying to argue a strategy, you're trying to argue that you're loyal um, you know, the other person might just sort of, you know, at best they're going to say, uh, yeah, sure, whatever, I agree with you. And at worst, you're going to actually have a conflict, which is not just bad for you and that other person, but also is bad for everybody around you. And even if you are completely right in your position and the other person is totally wrong by 
proving them wrong, the best that you've done is you just made the other person feel like they're stupid and it's a whole ugly thing where this person is going to be carrying resentment towards you. So you're better off just letting somebody else be wrong. Or if somebody is telling you you're wrong, you're better off just going along with it and say, you know what, you're right. I am. I am wrong. So we actually had a great example of this law this past season on Survivor Kagayan, where uh, right before the merge, Cass is a little bit nervous that Sarah is going to be disloyal. And Sarah said, you know, Sarah gets deeply offended and she says, how, how can you think this? I've told you I'm loyal. I've sworn to you I'm loyal. You know, I, I've promised you up and down and I'm loyal. And Sarah gets deeply offended about, about this. And she she's sort of arguing with Cass about her loyalty. And, and Cass's thought is, you know, you've never really proven you're loyal. You know, they they you sort of voted Accord on some easy votes with us, but you've never proven your loyalty by actually voting someone else out. You don't have any actual blood on your hands. And the very fact that Sarah is arguing ultimately serves to get Cass to vote her out. So instead of proving her loyalty uh, through action, Sarah argues her loyalty and it, it ultimately leads to her getting voted out of the game. In that same conversation or at least episode, you also have where Cass and Tasha are sort of trying to talk that through. And I feel like that Tasha, even though she's trying to mend the fences, I mean, I feel like she's at least a little bit arguing with Cass about why Sarah is correct because she sees Sarah as the swing vote. But in doing that, I think that she made Cass feel like she's wrong. And by having that argument with her, it's another instance in the same sort of feud of why another person with their arguing rather than actions ended up alienating the same person. I mean, it's such a crucial law on Survivor, just this idea of you never want to be starting an argument. You know, there's no time when an argument is going to serve you well. You're never going to be able to really convince someone who disagrees with you, and you're only going to make them, you know, put their back against the wall. And often, you know, even if they do pretend to agree with you, uh, there, there, there's some secret real animosity there that, that, this, is, that this creates. I think another place on Survivor where this becomes very important is in the final tribal council and not just in the final tribal council itself, but sort of like when someone is doing a reflection on the game versus somebody who is just trying to convince and change somebody's mind at the final tribal council. Because I think we've said a number of times that a lot of times the final tribal council vote is decided beforehand. So people come in with a predetermined way that they want to go. And maybe some people get swayed one way or the other. But I think a lot of people come into the final tribal council and feel like, oh, I'm going to debate my way to the win because right. I'm going to explain my game to everybody right. rather than have other people base it on the actions of the 39 days previously. I'm going to come in and I'm going to argue my way to the win. Yeah, you really have to have shown people along the way. And I think that's a, that's a really great example of this law. And I mean, we sort of saw that with Wu. I actually kind of faced a little bit of that uh, in my season where I didn't do a good job of showing people that I was making moves. And I just sort of counted on the idea that 
uh, I, at the end, I would be able to say, you know, I did all these strategic things. But when the jury's hearing that, they're like, uh, we didn't see that. You know, you're telling us that now, but we don't really have any reason to believe you. So, uh, and, and again, Wu did it a little bit this this past season where he said, um, you know, I was a big part of every move. I was there. You know, if they don't see it, if they don't believe it, you're not going to be able to convince them. And also, a lot of times you'll have somebody in the final two or final three and the person who is the juror is saying, you know, I didn't see you do anything. You were this, you were that. And the person right. in the final two or final three becomes argumentative with the person. Right. And they end up getting like, no, absolutely. You're you're wrong about this. I did this. I did that. You, you know, and they end up in an argument. And now this person who's being argued with is less incentivized to go and vote for you as opposed to the idea of, you know what? You are right about that. I, while I may not have done blah, 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 blah. You know, I was also doing, doing this and maybe I wasn't doing it as good as you were. And so, well, even if you don't believe it, you're better off going with the person and basically just patronizing the person who's asking the question and, you know, not in an obvious way where they feel like you're just blowing them off. But if you could sort of just like blow some smoke back to that person, you see lots of times in the jury, like specifically with, you know, Malcolm and Cochran in the Caramoan jury and Todd with John Robert, where if somebody can ask you a very pointed question, you can sort of patronize and sort of make them feel good about themselves and turn that person around as opposed to confronting them head on and arguing with them. Yeah, you're never going to be able to convince someone. When someone is coming at you with that level of vitriol, especially at the jury stage, you're never going to be able to convince them that you're right. You have to sort of emotionally diffuse the situation. And I think that maybe really is the core of this, is that you know people ultimately don't make these big, crucial decisions in life with their heads. They, they make them with their hearts. You know, they, and the head, the head plays a, a big part of that. But if they feel something is really wrong, they're never going to really truly believe you. You're never going to be able to rationally convince someone of something that they don't really ultimately believe. Um, and so, yeah, showing them along the way is is the way to, is the way to go. Is there anybody else that you felt like did this not in the final tribal council? I mean, so one example of someone who on Survivor who really did win with their actions instead of their words is Boston Rob on Redemption Island. Again, going to the well of Boston Rob for for perfect gameplay. But you know, he he talked a lot about loyalty and the importance of loyalty in his alliance. But it wasn't just talk for him. You know, both times when he he saw Matt Elrod as being even slightly disloyal, he immediately voted him out. Now, that gives a big message to everybody else in the alliance. You know, not only is loyalty the value we're espousing, but if we even stray a little bit, we're going to be out of luck. You know, and he doesn't have to explicitly make that point because everyone can see that happened to Matt. So if actions are much more important than arguments, Stephen, does this mean that the whole concept of survivor know-it-alls is flawed? <laughs> I don't know if we'd be able to go out on the island and uh, have this this sort of back and forth and then convince people of, of our plan of action. But uh, luckily, we, we're not in that position. All right. So may, maybe I will scrap the idea of just doing everything with like sock puppet reenactment and we'll stick to arguing for the next season. <laughs> Yeah. All right. I mean, we should try the sock puppets at least once before giving up on the idea entirely. And could it hurt? Yeah, it can't hurt. So remember, 
It's tempting to argue with another person because you can clearly see how it's obvious that you're right. But winning the debate seldom goes hand in hand with winning over the person. Instead of letting your words do all the talking, let those around you see your point for themselves by observing your strong actions. Law 10 is infection. Avoid the unhappy and unlucky. Now, why is this such a a vital law? Well, Stephen, this is one of my favorites because you know these people in real life. These are people that just have like a black cloud over their head. You know, you whether it's dating these people or you meet them in school or whatever. But there are some people that, you know, you just you talk to them and they just have one bad thing happens to them after another. And they've got all these all of these problems and you feel bad for them and you want to help them out. But the more you help these people out, the more you get sucked down with them. And the best thing that you can do when you meet somebody like this is just to avoid them like the plague because unluckiness is contagious, Stephen. It sounds kind of like new agey BS, but but it's really true. Like there are people with just this negative energy about them and this kind of negativity that that, you know, no matter no matter what they're involved in, they just they just drag it down and they drag you down with them. And I I kind of love this law because I'm a pretty rational person. And this is a little bit of an irrational law, this idea that someone who is inherently unhappy or inherently unlucky. um, But it kind of bears out with practical experience that if you do, you know, date that person who's just miserable, they're going to make you miserable. And then, you know, bad things are going to happen around them. Yeah. The unlucky thing makes it sound sort of mystical. Probably that the more modern way to say it are avoid people that are high drama because, (laughs) you know, any of these people that you meet and reality stars especially have this, where there's just drama around them all the time. There's an arrest warrant for them. There's like all these th- all these things going on that they uh, they're trying to get custody of of their kid uh, you know there's a, a million things going on it's not just one problem that it's like they have 15 problems at any given time and it's never their fault and it's always like wow this person's very unlucky that it's not luck like that there's something that's going on with this person and if you get stuck to them you get attached to them they need a ride somewhere it's just they're going to bring you down with them and you want to disassociate as much as you can with people like this and now where this comes into play on survivor is that these people often will get cast for Survivor (laughs) because of all of their drama. So the Survivor, the casting department, will take the find people like this, like, oh, this person has a million problems. This person's fighting with everybody. This is great. We need them on Survivor. So this is a very important thing to think about when you are playing in the game of Survivor because these people will bring you down. Yeah, Coach has that famous, you know, aphorism that they're going to 
cut out the cancer of the tribe or whatever. And uh, it's important. You actually do. There is the, the tribes do have a cancer and you have to cut it out. Now, no one likes being called the cancer, uh, but it's important to get rid of it. So one example of uh, on, from a recent season, once again, going to the, the wonderful well of Survivor Kagayan um, was Jatia and the Brains tribe. Now, from the first moment that the Brains tribe hits the beach, it is obvious to everybody that Jatia is a problem. You know, she immediately assumes control of the tribe and tells everybody how to start building the shelter, uh, and it's completely wrong. Um, and that's just the beginning, obviously. You know, from multiple challenge flubs to dramatic confrontations, to actually pouring out the tribe's rice. And throughout all this, the Brains tribe just keeps on keeping her around. They never vote her out. Maybe their idea is, hey, this is a goat. Maybe their idea is, hey, this is my ally. Maybe, you know, Who knows what the strategic mental conception they have is behind keeping Jatia. But they keep on losing and losing and losing. And uh, they become, at the start of the game, one of the worst tribes in the, in the history of Survivor until they finally wake up and vote Jatia out. And that point is when everything turns around for the Brains tribe. And in fact, the, you know, Jatia is the third person voted out of the Brains tribe. And then all three of the other Brains, once they get rid of Jatia, go all the way to the end. Now, yes, there's some circumstance there. And you can always point to the other circumstances uh, about you know, well, that's right before the swap, and then the brains are in a position of control. And, you know, there's a lot of great reasons, but the core issue is when Jatia is there, total disaster. As soon as she's gone, total success. Yeah, and in the case of Jatia, it seemed like for Tasha and Cass that they felt like, well, she's loyal. We know how she's going to vote every time. But the act of keeping her around was an anchor on them, and they were losing challenges, and they had no food because she already had dumped out the rice, and it was like, don't take your eyes off her because she might do something crazy after that. And you can't go through Survivor like that with a person that you just need to be babysitting the whole time, even if they are... A loyal vote. It's just not worth it for the numbers. So you can't just build your game around somebody like that who is the source of all that drama just for a number. It's a bad idea. And pragmatically, you know, she's costing them challenges and all that stuff and actually costing them food. But, you know, the the even beyond that, there you're right. There's that core sort of you know, energy, emotion that is dragging down the whole tribe. Now, Another example of this from Survivor Karamoan comes in the form of Shamar. And the difference here is that in Shamar, you had Sherry who very quickly identified Shamar as a person who was that sort of cancer in the group. But she looked at Shamar and said, oh, you know, he's causing all this drama. He's making everybody mad and, and we're having to do all these things and he's not doing any, any of the work. He's going to be the perfect person that I'm going to take with me to go to the end. He's going to be my Philip Shepard like Boston Rob had in Survivor Redemption Island. And the problem with that is you cannot carry somebody like that with you for 39 days in the game of Survivor because the good, which of, oh, this person's an 
easy jury goat that that is drastically dwarfed by the amount of disaster and pain and all sorts of misery that this unlucky person who's creating all of these problems is going to bring up over the course of 39 days. So was Philip not a cancer? Was he not the unhappy and the unlucky? Like, or, or is Boston Rob just that good that he can he can even disobey a lot? What do you think about the Philip example? Well, that's a really good example. But for Boston Rob, I don't think that Philip was necessarily the cancer because Philip was a loyal soldier who, you know, if Boston Rob told him do this, he would do this. If Boston Rob told him to do that, he would do that. And he was also such a great distraction. So Rob was able to control Philip, whereas I don't think that Sherry was really able to control Shamar and tell him, okay, don't do this. Don't do that. You're going to be the next one voted off if you're not going to do that. And Philip had to sort of prove his loyalty to Rob. And Philip was also a loyal person. And Philip, for the most part, would fight with the people from the other tribe once they (laughs) got to the merge. Whereas Shamar was fighting with, you know, Reynolds and Eddie and and all these other guys that were part of their own tribe. So Philip was annoying, but he wasn't so much a major force of chaos in his own tribe. So I think it was more of a controllable factor with, in the case of Philip, as opposed to Shamar, who was just one disaster after the next and ultimately ends up having to leave on a medevac, which some people say was maybe he was really just quitting. So again, it was more drama. Those eye cuts, you know, I've had like some sand in my eye and that is tough. Yeah. Nobody likes a sandy eye. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to wear goggles if I go on Survivor ever again. <laughs> That's the move. That'll be your luxury items, yeah. goggles. Or at least a, a visor like Jordy LaForge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we actually, I actually had uh, some some cancers on the, uh, in, in token chains. The biggest one, of course, was Aaron, famously, who, who, who Coach actually said that cancer line about. And, you know, they never were able, Tim Bureau was never able to cut out the cancer of Aaron. And as a result, they actually completely imploded as a tribe because of Aaron. I mean, that's like the clearest example of this one person who, you know, you're you're calling her the tribe cancer. You're saying she's the problem. And in fact, she was the problem. Like she led to the Timbiras totally falling apart. So what did she do that necessarily made her be the cancer in Coach's eyes? You know, I think actually it might have been circumstantial that Aaron was when she started Survivor. You know, I think she was just coming off of, uh, you know, a bad breakup. And, you know, she was maybe a little bit negative and not not maybe team Timbira. And maybe she just was not team coach. You know, maybe she could also just see through his BS a little bit. Um and she was maybe trying to uh, go back to law nine and win through argument, you know, whereas Tyson and Brent and Brendan would just sort of like pat coach on the back and be like, yeah, whatever, dude, she might actually, she actually tried to maybe call him out a little bit. So, uh, you know, that was the, that was the cancer of Aaron. And, and she was, uh, she put, put her own, her own position over coach's position in the game and ended up sort of, uh, costing the Timbira tribe the game. Well, I feel like we've stumbled onto something else here where in the case of Aaron or in the case of Jatia, where if you have somebody who is sort of like this cancer in the tribe, when you let them know that they are the cancer, then (laughs) that drama sort of gets 
pointed back to you in your direction. So it's one thing to sort of identify this person as this person has all this drama, this person has a black cloud over them. We need to get rid of this person. But in the mis- the mistakes that people have made before, specifically where Jatia is dumping out the rice and having all of these, you know, these tantrums in the game, then you cannot let the person who is the drama-filled person know that you see them as the cause of the problems because you're only going to ultimately have more problems. They're going to flip on you. They're going to throw yep. you out. And then it's your, it's going to be an even bigger problem than just having this unlucky person bringing you down. Yeah, we, we actually, uh, we were in, in Token Chains. We also had another, another good, uh, another good cancer. We had Carolina who she was so negative. She was complaining about how, you know, the outdoors were too dirty. You know, she was just, she had this sort of feisty conniving kind of attitude that we all recognized right out of the gate. As soon as we voted her out, we were unified. We were together. We were happy. Obviously we were able to go very far in the game. Uh, Carolina, such, such a poison. She even ruined the uh, redemption Island finale. (laughs) Oh no. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. And so the way that we're talking about this specifically, we're talking about in the pre-merge game that this is the case. Obviously, in the post-merge game, somebody like that, having them having them around is probably a good thing because there's not, in the individual game, they can't cause as much damage as they can in the pre-merge game. Right. When you're competing as a team, it is really important to have a lot of that team unity to sort of be together. You know, you are in the position of voting people off, of course, but having someone who's just creating that dissension when you really need to be fostering that group kind of cohesiveness is really destructive. And that being said, that you ideally would want to have get rid of this person before you get to the merge. Or if they were from the other tribe, then you can, you know, use them as necessary. But, you know, it's a situation where, you know, you don't want to make them a key person in your group because they are always still going to have that drama around them. Yeah. So avoid the temptation to take the hard luck loser onto your team. Sure, it's a feel-good story if you can help them out, but often you'll find that they tend to be the anchor that can bring down your entire ship. Law 11 is learn to keep people dependent on you, Stephen. And so this is a very important law, both in in real life, in Survivor. Why why is it such an important law of power to you? Sure. I mean, in any undertaking, if people are independent, if people are in positions of power themselves, they're going to go off and do their own thing. You know, they're going to be fine. They can take you or they can leave you. But if people are dependent on you, if your information or your wisdom or your strength is somehow, you know, crucial to their survival, they're going to really want you around um, more. And that's survival in any sense. You know, that's survival in the corporate world. If, if, if people need your leadership or your expertise in something – you know, in order for them to succeed, they're going to want you around. If they don't need you, they're going to cast you to the side. One of the things that Robert Greene talks about in the book is that there's this idea of reverse independence where the more they need you, 
the more freedom you have. And so if you think right. about it like this, like at your job, if you have some unique skill set that nobody else in the company can do or can do as well as you can, now all of a sudden you can basically make any demand you want where it, <laughs> where it's like, okay, well, I need, you know, three weeks off for four, four weeks off. Whereas if you are not you know, having people dependent on you, they'll tell you, well, you know, we'll hire somebody else. You know, you're not worth the trouble to us. Whereas the more valuable and the more unique your skills are, people are going to be more likely to want to work with you and help you with whatever you need. So it's like, oh, well, Stephen, that's kind of a tall order, but let's see if we can work with you on trying to make that happen because only you can do the, you know, whatever service there. So it's really, really valuable to sort of have some sort of a skill set that nobody else can do. Make sure people know that this is the thing that you can do and that you're so good at and that nobody else can do. And then also, if anybody else is starting to do the same thing that you have your unique skill set based on, you kind of want to like cut them down and realize that that person <laughs> is a competitor to you and is, is really screwing up your deal. Yeah, and that's true both, you know, as a as a boss, you know, pe the people below you, if they see that you, you know, your expertise or your skill set is vital to them, they'll be more loyal to you. Also true, uh, you know, in terms of your superiors at work or your bosses at work, if if they become completely reliant on you, then you know you have a lot. As as Rob was saying, you you've got a lot uh, of room to sort of operate. Okay, so let's look at this specifically on Survivor. And the thing that comes to mind is the basic survival aspects of the game, Stephen. Right. Um, I mean, I really believe that people are more inclined to keep you around if you are helping them out at camp. You know, I think when we're watching the show now, you you don't really see a lot of the camp life. You know, you don't see the fishing, you don't see the fire building, you don't see the shelter building unless someone is really screwing up. But uh, from my perspective, when I was out there, you know, if you had to make a decision between two people, you were always going to keep around that person who was helping you out, who was getting you food, who was making your fire. Um, and I think that that kind of goodwill actually goes beyond just these marginal decisions. I think it goes to you're going to have a much higher opinion of them. You're going to want to play the game more with them. You're going to want to interact more with that person. I think those people who are providers ultimately can go much deeper into the game, not just a little bit deeper in the game. I don't want to totally poo-poo it because I feel like in the case of a tiebreaker, it is a good check mark in that person's favor. I know personally in Survivor of the Amazon, when we were talking about should we vote out Matthew or should we vote out Shauna right before the merge, that part of that decision was, well, at least Matthew can catch fish. Right. Whereas Shauna is not really bringing anything to the table from the survival element. So I do think that it's a factor, but ultimately I feel like the history of Survivor is that people will say, okay, well, we can starve for 10 more days or we could starve for 15 more days. We don't need a Rupert around to, even though he's catching all this fish, other people will step up and we will be able to figure it out. But it is somewhat important, but I don't think it's ultimately the deal breaker. Right. I'm not going to say it's a deal breaker, but I do. I think it's more than a small consideration. And it's not just that sort of core I need fish, therefore I need to keep Rupert. But it's 
I mean, Rupert's a bad example because he's got a lot of negative baggage other than just, you know, the fish thing. Um, so, but you know, someone who is getting you fish, it's not just, oh yes, I need fish. So I need Tom around, but wow, Tom is a leader. He's, you know, he's a great guy. He's the person I want to be with. And maybe it's less likely after the merge or at the merge, you know, certainly in the very early parts of the game, those people who are the core providers are the people who are, you're going to keep around. Yeah, there's a whole secondary skill sets of people where it's like the strategic and the social parts of the game are first, but then you have people who, when they do nothing around camp, then that is something that is always a strike against them when it comes to voting people off. And I feel like, you know, that's a very important part of the game. As long as you're with other people who work hard, you want to be also one of the people that are that are working hard. And there's also other things that are unique skill sets, whereas like Boston Rob, he has also, again, with, uh, to bring up Boston Rob, but he has demonstrated that he can start a fire where not a lot of other survivors uh, have been able to do that on, on their own. Um, we've seen it more and more in recent seasons where more people come into the game with that ability to start the fire. Again, yeah. once the fire is started, then, you know, it's like, well, what do, what do we need you? But if you have a situation where the other people are having trouble keeping that fire going, that could be just as valuable as the idea of keeping people well fed. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's also this idea that, you know, being a provider or pe- keeping people dependent on you goes beyond just feeding them. Yeah, and that idea really goes into the idea of finding people who are in real need of your services. So in real life, this looks like, you know, they use the example of, you know, maybe like a politician who's down on his luck that you can come in and sort of be able to reform their image and get them back to where people are really excited about them again. And so this idea also is very pertainable to Survivor because the idea is if somebody is in power, if somebody has everything going for them, they don't need your help that much. They already have a good deal going. It's the people that are on the bottom that are most dependent on your help. And I feel like this is something that I can definitely relate to going back to Survivor of the Amazon, where I had a point in the game where I was with a group who was probably going to be the final four if everything held together. And that was Alex and Jenna and Heidi and myself. And to the point where, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really a huge help to them. We were sort of, we had the numbers and we were going to be the final four as long as nobody did anything crazy. And I saw these other three people who were all on the bottom, who were going to be the next three people to go home. And I realized that they were probably more dependent on me being the key person in their foursome than the other four was. And I decided to make a move. And in doing so, the other people were very dependent on me as the the person who was going to put them in a better position. And I think, you know, I think Tony did that so well this season, too, where he kind of reached out to these people who had been marginalized even on the Braun tribe, you know, Trish, who kind of everyone had made fun of or didn't like because of her laugh. You know, then he picked up Wu when when Cliff and Lindsay quit. So he was good at picking up these people who were uh, immediately sort of outcasts and then bringing them into his fold. I mean, you know, Cass is another great example. You know, along the way, Tony picked up these powerless people and made them his allies. So it's important to have the skills to evaluate what unique ability you bring to the table that nobody else can do as well as you. 
Even more importantly, you need to make sure everybody around you knows this information too. With that kind of dependency on what you do, the thought of life without you is always going to be worse than keeping you around, no matter how happy it might make them to have you gone. Law 12 is use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victim. What do you make of this law, Rob? All right. This is another law that I really, really like. And it's about this idea of, you know, sharing and expressing yourself to people because when you open up to people, it disarms them and it makes people feel like that they want to reciprocate and open up to you. And there's a lot of instances where you could either literally open up to people and sort of be manipulative in that way, or you could, you know, basically open up to people about something that you've done wrong, which may or may not have even happened. So either way that you are disarming and people are like, wow, this person is really honest and you endear yourself to people by sort of opening up and revealing a secret, which may or may not be true. And in this case of the idea of selective honesty, it's about, you know, here's something that I was dishonest with you about previously and I want to let you know about this or a transgression that I had made earlier and I want to let you know about it. It's kind of an interesting play on the on that previous law, which was, um, win through action rather than argument where, it, you know, what we talked about with that example was, you know, you're never going to be able to convince someone that you're honest. You have to show you're honest. And this is a little bit of, of taking that and perverting it. You know, you show you're honest and then they trust that you're honest and then you can be dishonest after they believe you there. Well, that's why it's like interesting the way these laws sort of interact with each other and play with each other. You know, once you've mastered the law of, uh, you know, winning through action, then you can start to subvert that law and take it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. And another way that this is sort of interesting is the idea of not just through words, but you can also like give a gift to somebody and, you know, you go ahead and you give somebody a present and they're like, uh, oh my God, that was so nice. Thank you. And then it's really, and you want to borrow money from them. And so it's <laughs> sort of like you are opening them up to be able to exploit something later on down the road. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, if, if you, you will always once you've like won yourself into a person's favor, like people form their snap judgments and uh, then they will sort of stick with those judgments, even as, you know, maybe their better nature realizes something is, is a miss. So if you can kind of create that overwhelming feeling of trust or, or goodness, um, you know, and let's, let's say that this applies more to survivor than real life. Hopefully, hopefully we're all, we're all actually being sincere and honest and loving with each other in real life and, uh, you know, being manipulative and deceitful in a game situation where, you know, it's not, it's not as a uh, negative. Yeah. But make no mistake. Like it happens all the time in real life where somebody wants something from you or somebody is trying to manipulate you. And how do they do that? They go ahead and they may divulge something or they may give you a gift. And that's really when your guard should be up as opposed to go the other way around. And, you know, in the game of Survivor specifically, there's something 
something that is disarming about your, you know, your guard is up all the time. It's like everybody's out to get me. Everybody's out to get me. And all of a sudden somebody opens up to you and somebody uh, gives you a gift or somebody gives you something. It's like, whoa, you know, it, it's very, it's really can throw you off of what you're doing. So you really have to be careful about this. Now, one of the times where I was able to use this was in Survivor the Amazon. I needed to, as I talked about in the previous law, flip at the final seven to go from my alliance of Alex and Heidi and Jenna and switch over to working with Matthew and Butch and Christy. And the problem was for me was I had been telling Matthew for some time that there was a different thing going on, just like we talked about in earlier laws of there always has to be a smoke screen. There always has to be a fake plan going on. So people aren't suspicious of what the real plan is. So I had been feeding Matthew the fake plan for probably a week to 10 days of that. There was an idea of <laughs> that. There was a men's Alliance happening right. and Alex was telling me what was happening. And I was telling Matthew and he needs to go tell Butch because the men are all voting together secretly. And we can't let the women find that out. So now, in reality, I need Matthew to, to vote with me against somebody who is in our alleged fake alliance of uh, Alex. And so what I needed to do was come clean to Matthew about how I had been lying to him and telling him this fake plan and that I needed to tell him the real plan. And you, as you see in the episode, it ends up working really, really well, because then Matthew ends up saying like, well, you know, Rob is really a sincere guy. And he told right. me about some of the things that he had done previously. But, you know, this is, you know, I believe I believe him now because he's he's opened up to me. And I wish I, I could take more credit for this, but I feel like I really learned a lot about this from watching Big Brother 2 a year before I had played this. And Dr. Will Kirby was really the master of doing all this. And I had basically borrowed a page out of what I had seen him do. But the more that you can just op open up and tell people, be dis be honest about your dishonesty previously, people <laughs> will seem to always believe that. Now, did you make Matthew feel like a god? <laughs> no, he, <laughs> he felt like a god later. Yeah. Now you can, uh, you know what? Learning something from somebody else, that's an established way of, of, of being strategic. You know, you don't have to invent the rule book in order to have good strategy. So, you know, you, no, it doesn't take away from your excellent move at all the fact that you learned a great move and found the perfect way to implement it. Um, another one, another example that's kind of, it's a little bit dissimilar than that, but it's, it's still an example of someone who is using selective honesty to disarm the people around him uh, was Cochran in, in Karamoan, where Cochrane at every tribal council um, and I think throughout the game would always talk through all of the different strategic options. So when Jeff would ask him a question at tribal council, um, you know, does it make sense to vote off Don? He would say, well, for my game, it might make sense to do this and this and this. And, you know, of course, I'm worried that so and so has an idol. And if, and if that idol is played, maybe I need to turn on my alliance. And the way that he talked about strategy almost divorced the strategic side from the personal side. So by constantly talking about strategy, no one ever suspected that Cochrane or, or, or people thought of Cochrane as being very honest about his strategy and, and not duplicitous. And it was disarming to the rest of the tribe um, 
And then also, you know, when they, they came to vote for him in the end, they never thought of him as being personally duplicitous. They just thought of, you know, that strategy as being part of who he was. So he was just sort of robotic about what the scenarios were? Yeah, he was using this, you know, this sincerity about, about uh, you know, the game to kind of make everybody else feel more at home with him actually making game moves. One of the other ones that I really like from this was in Survivor Blood versus Water, where Vetus comes into the game, and Vetus has this very interesting backstory about how he was a drug addict and he was in jail, and he divulges this information to a lot of people. And because it's such a personal thing, people feel really uh, endeared to Vetus, and they want to help him. And Vetus even says himself, where he says, you know, the only thing that people like more than the bad boy is the reformed bad boy. And so when he's actually in a position where he is way outnumbered, he's the only guy on this tribe that has like Monica and Tina and Katie and Kat and Laura, he's able to get them to start getting rid of some of the people from their own group before they get rid of him because they personally like him so much and and they become invested in this story too of that Vetus is you know this reformed guy and he's a good guy now and this is such a great story and they got really invested in that story in addition to Vetus really playing the game very hard at that point you know and the reverse is also true where this can actually if you are not um if you're never honest or you never you know, share with people details from your life, you can actually it can actually hurt you in the game where if pe- people will see you as being devious, um, maybe even more devious than you are. I'm thinking specifically um, for me about Spencer and Survivor Token Sheens, where he you know, he was very, very closed off personally. And part of that was because he was gay and and wasn't comfortable sharing it with our tribe. But that had this, that created this sense of him as being someone who was scheming because, you know, there was clearly, he was clearly very interpersonally shut off from us. So we all sort of thought of him as this schemer who we wanted to kind of get out as as soon as possible opportunity. Now, Spencer actually was probably more honest with his alliances and his, you know, what he'd committed to people than anybody, anybody was, but because we had this idea of him as being closed off from us and not having this, this aura of sincerity and honesty, we never really trusted him. And if you don't have anything personal to open up about, you can always do like Russell Hance did in Survivor <laughs> Samoa and make up a story about how start, your your dog died in Hurricane Katrina and all and all. Yeah, just stuff. start telling tales, you know, just uh, whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't even have to be a real thing that happened to you. It could have happened to somebody else. And so, when your back is against the wall and it's crunch time, and you really need to get somebody back on your side, there's no better time to confess your sin or make a couple up. 